All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part two of our show today with Stephen Schneider and discussing, well, now in part two, we're going to go more into Epstein. But in part one, we've covered like the background of these things. You've gone into the history of Spycraft and the Honey Trap. Yeah. How they use, how they set up people they want power over to put them in a compromising situation and then have a control file on them ever since, which is an old game. Yeah. It seems that their playbook isn't very updated. <laughs> I mean, they don't, this is time immemorial. But of course, it's getting more and more refined. Yeah. Uh, the only interesting development, I think, is, and I touched that briefly in part one, is that people seem to have a higher and higher tolerance. They, they don't seem to care that much anymore. And that was explicit, uh, I, of course, thanks to internet, but it was explicitly demonstrated, I think, when Donald Trump became president, because they thought he would tank himself. Everything he did, every corner, he always did a quote-unquote wrong move, mm -hmm. <laughs> traditionally speaking. But people didn't seem to care, because we now live in an, an age of um, populism. And uh, Trump was famous for saying straight out, he said, I could kill someone or shoot someone in, in the street and get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when he said that. Yeah, something like that, right? And he's so right. And it's a good thing, actually, because it means that the way people who rise to power, who are sent to power, who are of the people, the less they are being controlled, the more chance for, for the world, for the population. So uh, now I think, I mean, of course, there are always some boundaries you can't cross. And I think that's why <laughs> it's so heavily uh, focused on pedophilia, because that's not going to be forgiven no matter what, even, even not. Well, I don't know. Trump has been implicated together with Epstein. Yeah, he has. I think, though, that has more to do with the willful denial on the on the part of his um, his following here in the United States. And uh, just also, I think the pathological obsession so many people in the United States have with um, uh, the Clinton family as well. I pretty much once you linked the Clintons to this for everybody, it was like, there. We knew it all this time. So, I mean, that was like, <laughs> you know, kind of what I think a lot of people chose to fixate on. And in turn, a lot of the really hard line uh, Annie Clinton types also tend to be pro-Trump. So, yeah, I think you don't want to try to delve too deeply into the possibility that your guy is also doing the same thing that the Antichrist was engaged in. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, look, Clinton is undeniable. What was it? Fifty. Yeah, 50 I'm not times? trying. To, I should emphasize. I'm not trying to say that the Clintons aren't evil. I just, though, the extent to which people in the states fixate on the Clintons in comparison to some of the other elite elite families is just sickening. To be yeah, they're partisan. Perfectly honest. Yeah, they're just as partisan as as the ever dwindling pro Clinton faction. But 
You're right. They're, they're isolating themselves. The, so, soon there's only neocons and neolibs left. Everything else is being censored and smacked down on. And uh, that's a huge... I mean, if you look at the politics, Trump has... Uh, I think he has like a very clear majority among the Republicans, but it's still just a quarter of the uh, population. So if you look at the Democrats and the Republicans, I think it's like... 50% are voting in America. Yeah. And establishment Democrats and establishment Republicans get half of that vote. So that means about 25% are corrupt MFs or just useful idiots who, you know, goons and uh, ghouls who <laughs> vote for them or believe in them. But the vast majority, 75 to 80% of Americans, don't identify with any of these. And they scream the loudest, but they don't represent the population at all, the working class, whatever you want to call it. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's been undermined, the, the Trump thing. He Trump is even uh, implicated in one of the suitcases. I get, no, not suitcase. What's it called? Uh, court case? Suits? If oh, I, lawsuits, lawsuits. Lawsuits. One of the lawsuits against Epstein was also against Trump. And um, I think Clinton was on the Lolita Express, what, 50 times, something like that. And uh, there's a whole lot of other famous people being implicated. But of course, people know that, people knew that Epstein wouldn't survive to see the trial. Everybody was talking about it. You remember, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, I don't think a single person was shocked when it was announced that he had committed suicide. <laughs> No, except the first time, uh, they, they were not shocked then, but they said like, okay, so it was a suicide attempt, where's the evidence, blah, 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 and they couldn't deliver anything. And when it became clear to people that, oh my God, they're not even pretending, they're not even trying to convince us that this was a suicide and everything is clear and up and up, as you say. Mm -hmm. That's when I noticed that even super mainstream Kool-Aid drinking people started to realize, geez, maybe conspiracies are true. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. a paradigm shift between the first and the second uh, suicide. And that's when the whole internet, there was like a meme. Epstein is gonna, if you think it's a meme now, where the meme is he didn't kill himself, there was also a meme, if you remember, between those two suicides. And the uh, meme was that he's, he's gonna succeed in his second attempt. Second attempt, quote unquote, right? Uh, he's gonna succeed in being suicided, <laughs> which has become an adjective. I love it. And so the, then it happened, and it was just complete cynicism across the board. It's as if they don't care. Do you have any perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been interesting how a lot of this stuff has played out in the last couple of years. To some extent, I think also you have to kind of um, include the, a lot of the stuff that was going on in the UK with Jimmy Savile as well, because I think that... On the one hand, when you're kind of standing back and looking at this stuff around 2018, 2019 or thereabouts, it's undeniable 
that there was some kind of elite pedophile ring operating amongst the Anglo-American elite. Just the amount of evidence that came out with Saville and Epstein, I mean, it was just overwhelming. And it got to the point where you're kind of saying even your you know average rank and file uh, Democrats and Republicans were forced to acknowledge that this really was a thing. Yeah. It's sort of interesting, too, though, because, I mean, this also roughly coincides um, with the rise of the Pizzagate narrative, um, you know, which I just had this out with uh, Alex about this. But I stand by the fact that I, in my opinion, Pizzagate was just complete and utter disinformation and also a kind of quasi October surprise as well. Yeah. But I like Alex uh, drinks that Kool-Aid. Yeah, Alex is a proponent of that, and I mean, it's just you know, again. Yeah, but not not the not the guy who went into the pizza shop and shot. Pizza. No, not necessarily the guy, but I mean, he seems to think that that there was some kind of network operating out of Comet Ping Pong. I mean, I don't want to necessarily put words in his mouth, but this is just. In terms of the actual allegations that were made online. It's not even physically possible in the first place because there's no basement at Comet Ping Pong. So there's no way that there could be a dungeon beneath the facility at all, yeah. unless you believe that somehow they were able to go in in the middle of Washington, D.C. and cover all of this up like overnight <laughs> no, or with nobody filming it. No, no, but isn't, isn't that an op? Isn't that, isn't that the whole distraction from the original Pizzagate? Remember, the original Pizzagate thing was the WikiLeaks that showed. Uh, well, yeah, his- you had the WikiLeaks up with John Podesta, but again, yeah, most of the it. stuff you're talking about here is that was a Marina Abrakovich, I can't remember her yeah. name now, but um, the spirit cooking lady. Yeah, yeah. And again, this stuff is very provocative art. I mean, there's no disputing that, but there's nothing illegal about any of this. And then beyond that, you're looking at the emails, basically trying to find these code words that are supposedly allusions to child pornography and child trafficking and okay well what's the evidence of this Mm. 4chan 4chan is where the the codes came from al Mm. i mean if you can't trust 4chan to be right about an international elite pedophile ring who can you trust so (laughs) right (laughs) you know this is like to me just trying to put this in the same level as something like detroit or franklin or savile or epstein or god help us the finders the cult that was implicated in sex trafficking kids and stuff and linked to the cia yeah it's absurd well it's 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 far less evidence that's for sure but we know look here's the thing when the epstein thing came to really when it because they started with court cases against him already back in um, 2008, I think, was the first lawsuit. But people didn't know that much about Epstein. When Trump took over, uh, the case blew up. And Trump's, I forgot what he's called, but uh, like a minister working for Trump. Oh, uh, when you mean Ocostas or something like that? The guy who said that Epstein had been working for an intelligence service? Yeah, one of the guys. Yeah, they squashed the whole uh, Epstein case. Yeah, this was like back Yeah, when he was working in Miami. I trying to remember what position the guy held it's like alexander alex acosta i think you're thinking of maybe Uh, but yeah yeah he was the one who had basically uh, squashed the epstein uh, proceedings in florida and uh trump's man mm -hmm. and then when it really blew up you notice something else uh, and it's not often you will notice it i noticed it already back when they took julian assange that's when i realized oh my god 
the more I had than I imagined. That's uh, when they took uh, WikiLeaks. Remember, they were coordinating everyone, all the international banks, even PayPal. There was a lot of private and public power bases that colluded and took down WikiLeaks at the same time. They couldn't get any money, no nothing. Yeah. Same thing you saw when they took down Alex Jones. Again, coordination at the top. The same thing we saw uh, with Epstein, that there was a coordinated censorship in the mainstream and in the alternative media too. Uh, when I say the alternative media, I'm not saying that we were self-censoring. I was saying like YouTube, Google, Twitter, all these things were trying to quench uh, so there was like this was before the pandemic. Now we're used to it, right? Oh, you can't if you even say the world COVID, you also have to come with a disclaimer. Oh, the vaccine helps. Blah 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 blah. Now we're used to living under information tyranny and censorship. But back then we went, and it wasn't supposed to happen. And the whole mainstream media went with uh, stenograph reading. Uh, the notes that they got, not one critical question. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, contributed to the feeling of a huge conspiracy that someone so powerful that they can stop media from exploring this, they can stop uh, prosecutors from going after this, they can even get to him and get him killed. And more importantly, because every time stuff like this happens, how are we tanking it? How are we realizing it? Always because of the cover-up. Something in the cover-up goes wrong. Most of the stuff in 9-11 is, is due to the cover-up. Most of the stuff in JFK. Yeah. And it's kind of the same here. They um, did all this stuff, and then they didn't even bother to try to seem plausible, seem... <laughs> explain this in a way that the Kool-Aid drinking mainstreamers could accept. And that's why I think so many people, even skeptics, came around to, wow, yeah, some conspiracies are true. <laughs> this was before COVID, of course. Now it's probably even shifted more. So uh, do you share my perspective of how uh, I experienced this uh, development? Well, yeah, I think it was rather remarkable, at least initially, the amount of stuff that was coming out with Epstein and how open it was, frankly. Um, you should probably could say the same thing about the Savile uh, situation as well, but I don't know enough about uh, the geopolitics in the UK at this point to really say specifically who was driving that. But in the U.S., it definitely seems like the revelations with Epstein uh, were a part of sort of the ongoing dispute between uh, the different American, you know, ruling factions. And effectively, you could say on the one hand, the kind of quote unquote neoliberal order, the Davos World Economic mm you know, that kind of crowd. And then on the other hand, the sort of Council for National Policies slash PayPal Mafia slash Secret Right Network. Um, I think there was a lot of hangouts in relation to Epstein that probably both of these two factions were going. Mm. I mean, the thing about Epstein that is intriguing is that he was uh, in a lot of levels uniquely damaging to both the Clinton family and Trump. So there is that aspect. And Bill Gates. Bill Gates lost his wife over it. <laughs> Pardon me? Bill Gates lost his wife over this. Yeah, this. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely think that in the grand scheme of things, neoliberal order had a lot more to lose over this. And as we had discussed in, I think, the prior uh, episode we recorded, uh, probably the overwhelming majority of people that Epstein 
of the names that appear in Epstein's Black Book, at least the Americans were affiliated uh, with the Democratic Party in the United States, including Trump himself, who was a Democrat for a good chunk of his life. Mm. Now, again, I still is actually. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, I want to emphasize this isn't to say that the Republicans aren't up to the same thing. I just don't think that Epstein was the guy keeping dirt on the Republicans. We, at this point, don't really know who the counter, who Epstein's counterpart is doing that for the Republican side of the aisle. But Epstein definitely had a lot of stuff that was very damaging to um, the Democratic Party in the U.S. and more broadly speaking, the neoliberal order, I think, throughout the West. Uh, but again, he was personally damaging to Trump on a lot of levels. And obviously a lot of hay is made about the connections between um, Clinton and Epstein. But Trump almost surely had known Epstein well before the Clintons became acquainted with him going back uh, to the late 80s, at least. In fact, there's even some, I mean, in some of the accounts that have come out, depending upon who you believe, I mean, there were even allegations that Ghislaine Maxwell had hooked up with Epstein through Trump. So, you know, there's <clears throat> certainly a lot of indications that Trump... But, but, but would Trump uh, know? I mean, she's like a British... Sus- yeah, Trump knew her father, Robert Maxwell. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, okay. the, the, Trump and Robert Maxwell have known each other since like the late 1980s. And that kind of gets back. You in, talked about that in part one, actually. Yeah. I yeah, yeah, that. yeah. And, you know, again, this goes into also some of the financiers that Trump was hanging out, the Drexel Burnham Lambert clique. I mean, you also have people like Jimmy Goldsmith in these circles, though. Goldsmith and Maxwell had a, well, they had an interesting relationship, to put it mildly, though. Um, both men uh, had gone to great lengths to destroy the British publication Public Eye. Uh, by essentially filing frivolous lawsuits against it, which bankrupted it. They, uh, why, why was that? What, what, what was Public Eye into? Oh, Public Eye was kind of like a mudrucker, you know, publication. It dug up a lot of dirt on some of the uh, shenanigans that uh, Sir Jimmy and uh, Captain Bob were up to. And um, right. it was, you know, essentially it was a kind of precursor for Peter Thiel's uh, later assault on Gawker. I mean, mm. it's just basically wealthy men who didn't want their private lives aired and unlike normal people they had the money to utterly destroy a publication so yeah yeah i mean look they have the power to get even the judges they want if you look at the epstein case i mean the case went away when they got rid of him but there's still this i don't know how you pronounce the name but i heard a hilarious version gis lane <laughs> maxwell <laughs> But in her case, they put in Judge Kaplan. Now, people, if you don't know who Judge Kaplan is, oh my God, he's super corrupt. I I, I won't be surprised if he's going to take over the Assange case. But, for example, they uh, assigned him to the Donsinger case. If people don't know the Stephen Donsinger case, Google it. It's incredible. It's uh, basically a lawyer who beat... Dick Cheney's old company, uh, what's it called? Halliburton. Yeah, he beat Halliburton in South America. Like a tribe won against them, which tells you how bad the case must have been, right? Normally, usually multinational corporations (laughs) win. And certainly a poor little tribe don't have anything to... But he managed to beat them, and so they had to pay uh, reparations and everything. And they went after him personally. That's how bad the American court system has become now that uh, the powerful can just use them as their own stooges and that's what they do we see that in the in the case with um, 
Assange, they can even reach Britain. And yeah, yeah, yeah. we see that in the Donsinger case where they got Judge Kaplan, who is like, well, people Google it. And he's also for this Maxwell case. So I don't think anything, hear me now, quote me later, I don't think anything compromising will come out of the Maxwell case. Um, for some reason, they don't seem to want to. I mean, they haven't finished her off yet. I guess she's protected then. I guess they think they can get away with it, that she doesn't have to to give up any real uh, information. Although I did hear the other day that both Clinton and Trump was mentioned in the latest court case. Well, the other thing, too, is I don't know really at this point if Epstein's like... Uh a major you know, point of emphasis for the American public anymore. I mean, certainly with all the, the stuff with the COVID lockdowns, the ongoing debate over the vaccines, inflation, there's there's a lot of other issues right now that yeah. the public at large are preoccupied with. And if Ghislaine were to suddenly commit suicide or something like that, that would actually probably renew interest yeah. in the Epstein <laughs> thing. So I That's think right. for all parties involved at this point, it's it's best if she just goes away quietly. So I'm guessing that there was probably some kind of deal like that made, you know, um, I wouldn't shock me if she does do a very light prison sentence. Um, probably not unlike, um, the CEO of, um, oh gosh, was it, uh, was it Cheney's old company Halliburton or no, it was Enron, the Enron executive. That's right. 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 I think wrong. like what they gave him a 10 year prison sentence and he ended up like serving two or three or something like that. By the time they part- in, in a luxury prison, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In a luxury prison. I'm sure Ghislaine's probably been offered some kind of deal like that. Just, you know, hold out. But her angle seems to be I was a victim, too, of. Action. Yeah, um, she may get away with that one. But yeah, and I don't think that she's going to face any kind of serious legal consequences. And I think that that's kind of the the hope. I mean, they might, like I said, make a decent, the sentence initially might at least seem like it was an attempt to seriously punish her, but I seriously doubt she's going to actually, you know, serve any significant amount of time or anything like that. Um, no. But yeah, I just, I think that's one of the big reasons why she's probably not going to suddenly commit suicide or anything to that effect, because at this point, I mean, nobody's really paying attention to this stuff. I, I think a lot of people would just assume this goes away quietly while we're distracted with uh, runaway inflation yeah, yeah, and yeah. World War Three and you know that kind of stuff. Well, after uh, they took down JFK, it started then, but it really accelerated after 9-11. The national security state, one of the rules of that power base, that international power base, is that you reward incompetence. So people are failing upwards. That's number one. Number two, there is no recourse to take for ordinary people against the powerful, whether it's the state or the corporations or, or individual players, Wall Street, Madison Avenue, whatever. And um, so they are completely protected. Mm-hmm. And that means that in the rare cases where for some accidental reason, like in Epstein's case, they get the scrutiny on them, Something else has to happen. Like, for example, they assign the right judge or they have, and, and prosecutors are, 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 of course, corrupt. If you had a real prosecutor, 
a real prosecutor who really wanted to get to know this would be on the Epstein case from day one. They would extract concessions. They would extract uh, names, information. They would do the same with uh, uh, Maxwell. Or maybe even offer Maxwell to go free if you you give us the higher-ups. But, of course, no. They are like PR agents. They only want to, okay, what can we get away with? How can we make this case go away with as little damage as possible? That's kind of their perspective, in my view. So, so there is a power. So everybody senses that there is this invisible hand. There is a power layer that we don't have access to. Sure. And it's impossible to say if it's just one person or if it's like a, a network or if it's even uh, official organizations or organs who are behind us. But I guess it all goes back to who Epstein really worked for. Do you have any idea of what agencies or, or, or power groups, interest groups he really represented? I mean, obviously not just one when you're at that level, you know, uh, double spy, triple spy, whatever. It's hard to tell where your loyalties are. But officially, who do you think he was on the payroll of? Well, I mean, he was probably on the payroll of multiple intelligence services. And obviously there is the Israeli angle that's been... Uh, played up extensively. I would imagine that he probably had dealings with the CIA at some point uh, through his uh, connections with Ghislaine. I mean, surely he had links to MI6. Um, you know, that was another thing I think I got into the last um, episode is involvement in arms trafficking in the 1980s uh, with Sir Desmond Lease and the, you know, the whole kind of uh, angle with the British and that. Right. So, you know, certainly, I mean, I think the guy did have a lot of connections to the intelligence services, but I mean, I do think that in the modern world, it's more of this sort of loose confederation of uh, ex-spooks, you know, usually working through the private sector. Mm. Uh, you know, this is kind of the network that Danny Casolaro dubbed the octopus. Um, right. You know, it was certainly, I think it was a lot more informal during the Cold War, uh, and it was probably at least nominally more political in terms of the fronts that were used. I mean, a lot of this kind of stuff went through organizations like the World Anti-Communist League or the American Security Council or more fringe groups. I think getting into the 90s and the post-Cold War years, a lot of it became uh, codified more so through like private security companies, things like that, that we had mm -hmm. uh, you know, talked about in the first uh, episode. Uh, which I think is where you're kind of seeing where a lot of this power is emerging from nowadays. When you look at like, uh, to give an example, you know, what I sort of dubbed the, the broader Cambridge Analytica network. Mm. I mean, you know, there's a lot of interesting people involved in all that. You've got people like Bannon, you've got people like the Mercer family that are tied into the Council of National Policies. Eric Prince appears to have connections to that. So that that's the Blackwater guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This brings up all the ties to private military companies like Blackwater, his new one, Frontier Services Limited. Mm. Uh, you know, you bring in elements connected to Palantir and Peter Thiel. I mean, Palantir is a major private security security firm as well. Um, there's a lot of these. And Peter Thiel is running that one. 
Palantir, yeah, yeah, he owns Palantir. Mm. And it's a good possibility he was really the driving factor behind Cambridge, honestly. He and Bannon appear to have been closer friends than a lot of people realized. And um, Cambridge was basically modeled after Palantir and what Palantir had been trying to do uh, with big data and you know developing predictive models for human behavior and that type of thing. Um, so, and it's really interesting, of course, since Facebook was so instrumental in providing all the, the data for this and well, who helped fund uh, Facebook and turned it into a monster, Peter Thiel. Right. So, uh, and he I heard, uh, yeah, I heard uh, Facebook also has, was it NSA or CAA, uh, people in NSA or CAA in the board? Oh, it probably does. I mean, the same thing with them. Google as well. I mean, yeah. that was really... I think the actual continuation of a lot of this MK Ultra kind of behavior modification research, and much more so with um, the behavioral sciences and like what's now being done online with uh, Google and Facebook and those kinds of things, because you offer up so much personal data to these institutions. I mean, just think about what it says about you as a person with all of the Google searches that you've done over the course of your life. Mm. In that capacity, Google knows more of your darkest secrets than probably anybody, you know, living person does. Mm. Um, Facebook, I mean, provides another, you know, treasure trove of this kind of material. And uh, you combine that with, uh, was it the five point personality profile, the popular one that they use now? I mean, you can make some pretty good predictions. They also use, they also used, um, oh, what's it called? The, it's based on Jung. Uh, Myers Briggs. Myers Briggs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. CIA officially uses that. Yeah, Myers Briggs. I'm a fan of that one myself. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And, to kind of bring it back to Epstein, too, and again, this is why it's so interesting that he became a major venture capitalist for a lot of tech uh, during the last stage of his life. So officially, what was his sources of income? Because I heard that people couldn't figure out where he got his money from. I think it was assumed that it was partly from Lex Wessner and managing um, his, what was it, his uh, trust or hedge funder. I can't remember exactly what mm. it was that Westin, or Epstein did for Wexler, but essentially Epstein had taken over managing a good chunk of Wexler's estate for a number of years. So, uh, but again, there was a lot of speculation. One, is this actually even Wexler's money as an Epstein mm. man? Is Wexler just sort of holding on to this and then Epstein was appointed to manage it for other sources. Again, that's kind of interesting when you look into the whole angle with uh, the state of Ohio and all of this, because um, Ohio is a major transit point for organized crime in the United States. Um, you oh, know, because really? it's Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's about, I don't know, seven or eight hours from Florida. It's about five hours from New York. Mm. Uh, it's right up there in the Mississippi going up into the Canada and the Great Lakes region. I mean, it's a major transit hub where you can send contraband to other parts of the country, and it has been for many, many years. So, and uh, to kind of give you an example of this, the Cleveland Mafia, the people around like Moat Dallas and what have you, these were the people that the syndicate tapped to take over running Las Vegas. Uh, Ohio was also a major gambling hub for a lot of years too. And then kind of like right across the border in Kentucky where they had a lot of the casinos. So it was, it was a very, for a very long time, it was a major hub of organized crime. And you still have a lot of those elements that are present there, um, though they certainly have a much more 
respectable front now. But, you know, when you see Wexler set up with that financial empire in uh, a state like Ohio with uh, Epstein, I think, operating out of there for a time in the late 80s, early 90s. For people who, you know, were in the know, it was probably obvious to them that he was some kind of money manager for illicit activities. But, you know, the whole thing with Wexler did provide him with an interesting cover in terms of, well, the guy, he's always surrounded by all of these young girls because he's he's helping uh, Wexler recruit models or some shit like yeah. that, you know, <laughs> like. I mean, Trump was because of the Miss World thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the same reason why <laughs> Trump knew Epstein. He, he, he yeah. you know, wasn't doing anything immoral. He just thought Epstein was legitimately just in it for the models and um, mm. helping them win the Miss Universe pageant or whatever. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because Epstein was like a fixer in many people's eyes. Like Bill Gates, who is his own worse. I mean, you couldn't pay people to to do more damage to Bill Gates yeah. and I mean, than I, he does himself, right? And I mean, that's the thing about Epstein. I mean, the general impression I've gotten is that he was very smart. Um, you know, like you were kind of talking about before, um, there were just so much of the Anglo-American ruling elite now is just, it's utterly incompetent. It truly yeah. is. And I mean, you can see this just so blatantly now with the COVID stuff and some of the moves by Davos. Is it incompetence or is it just that they know that now we have so much power that we don't have to keep up the charades and pretend anymore? I really think that it's more incompetence at this point and just the <laughs> fact that so many of these people, they've never had to work for anything in their lives. That's they've right. never been truly challenged by anything. No, they've been failing upwards. Exactly. And I think that's where a guy like Epstein comes into play because Epstein does seem like a self-made person, somebody who genuinely clawed his way up through the ranks. And Mm. a guy like that would have value to a lot of these hedge fund babies and things of that Mm. nature. Because I mean, on some level, I think that they're aware of the fact that they are incompetent. So, I mean, you need a guy like Epstein who can do, you know, some of this sketchy stuff and kind of keep the um the underbelly of the empire functioning yeah that was my point by invoking gates one more time because like i said gates is his own worst uh, i mean like i said in part one he had to pay very early on he did it media to to give him a good image look i'm wearing a sweater i'm just a nerd of the people you know, disregarding that he comes from uh, old money, the Gates family. But anyway, the point is... And he stole most of his work. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, although Alex denies that. But here's the thing. Bill Gates' excuse for hanging with Epstein, of course, a super poor excuse that nobody buys, although I'm sure it, it came up at some point, was that he was going to help him get the Nobel Peace Prize. Now... <laughs> Okay, you can say Epstein is connected, a uh, networker, whatever, but really, a Nobel Peace Prize, that, that, that reaches all the way up here to Scandinavia, to our government and to, to people, because the Nobel Peace Prize committee is here. So did he have control files even on 
people in the noble committee, <laughs> you have to wonder, right? Yeah. And uh, what on earth? Prince Andrew, you know, we, we've heard for the longest time all the rumors about the sex uh, maniacs and pedophiles among the British royals. And now we have a name. We have a face and a name to one of them. And he was indicted, I think, in the Maxwell case to, I, I don't know if it was a witness or something, but he refused to call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the girls that, uh, yeah, mentioned uh, Andrew specifically. Right. But in, in Abstin's case, are, are we talking uh, like, what do we know about the prostitution rings that he was running? Like, uh, uh, was it both homosexuality and uh, heterosexuality? Was it like what most of them above uh, the legal age and just somewhere underage? How underage are we talking about? What, what's the details around that? Well, it does. From what I've seen, it seems like Epstein mostly dealt with girls. I'm not really recalling uh, any instances off the top of my head of like boys being used. Now, obviously, it's quite no, me neither. Possible, but again, I, um, you know, I'm guessing that there was somebody else who specialized in that kind of thing. Epstein seems like his uh, expertise was uh, women who were either teenage girls or appeared to look like teenage girls. Also, I don't. I think I think the youngest I can remember was maybe 14 or 15 years old in terms of like girls that had shown up um, in Epstein's ring. And even that might be a little young. So, I mean, in fairness, no, to I, I saw one who was 13. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I think that they were by and large in their teens, not to teens. say that that's not appalling, but I don't recall any instances of especially young children, like seven or eight years old yeah. or something like that. So it doesn't seem like he was necessarily playing to like a full blown, you know, uh, child sex ring either. Um, a lot of these guys seem like they were just... Which tells me that this is not the same. It may be more like Jimmy Savile, but it's not identical to yeah, stuff yeah, like exactly. the Belgian thing and the finders. And, and Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like the Belgian thing was almost surely playing to a much more exclusive audience, um, mm. to put mm. it mildly. Um, mm. You know, because again... <sighs> You know, how many rock stars in the 60s and 70s casually slept with teenage girls? I mean, it's taboo, but it's not that uncommon. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And in a lot of circumstances in society, we have been willing to tolerate it for better or worse for, you know, in the modern era. Yeah, but but did you see it surface an old interview with uh, Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon of Sex Pistols? Pardon me about We're it. You know, uh, Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon of Sex Pistols? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he was saying in an interview, he was hinting to Savile, where he said, yeah, everybody knows what he's doing. And uh, I mean, Google it, people, and you can see it. So this was back in the 70s, 80s. So there was obviously rumors among those. And of course, he spilled the beans because he was a punk rocker, so he didn't give a damn. Mm -hmm, but yeah. people were afraid and they were pressured. And there, it was like a culture where these things are accepted, but you don't talk about it. And obviously, people knew to some extent, at least rumors, who was on the inside and who was on. Not that different from the Harvey Weinstein case. I mean, everybody in Hollywood also knew about Harvey Weinstein. I, I've seen actually Weinstein connected to Epstein. Yeah, yeah, I believe. Uh, I think it was his brother, I think, was maybe in Epstein's Black Book. But wow. yeah, they had some connections. But but we, there were never underage in his case, right? That was just 
being yeah i think uh, again it was yeah younger girls yes but if they were underage again we're probably talking like 16 17 thereabouts right 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 so okay so let's go into so this black book you mentioned what is that uh, it was, I think, Epstein's, I can't remember if it was his limo driver or his butler, like one of his servants had smuggled it out. Uh, and it was uh, the book, obviously, I don't know if it was literally a black book, but it had uh, a lot of these VIP names in it with phone numbers, uh, addresses for where they were living, that type of thing. So he kept uh, an old school address book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe Physically. he did. Well, I mean, right. he might have started, I'm guessing it probably started some years before it was smuggled out. Um, there were listings for individuals who had died uh, by the time. So this was this was his old, obviously he must have gone digital at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm mm. sure it probably had gone digital at some point, but this was probably a holdover, you know, something that mm. he had maybe started around like the late 90s, early noughts or something like that. Is this book available to the public? Has it leaked? Yeah, yeah, it was put online um, nice. by the author of Franklin Skinner, Nick Bryant. Yes, yes. So, and it was interesting too because I think it actually went online around 2015, 2016, a little before the Epstein scandal was uh, renewed as well. Wow. So it was kind of like a lot of these names were floating around for a few years before people really started to notice them. And um, even then, it was really just. Just a few of the the obvious family names, like the Clintons or the Trumps or the royal family, that people tended to obsess over. Was there other na noteworthy names? Oh yeah, well there were all kinds of names in there, and again, it, you know, it should probably be emphasized. I'm guessing not every one of these people. I mean, there's no indications that the book necessarily were just clients and people that Epstein was providing women to. These were just people that he knew, which were a very exclusive set of people, though I would imagine that uh, he was providing girls to several of them. But yeah, yeah. you know, you had uh, Trump, Clinton, you had members of the royal family, you had a lot of the names that were kind of connected to the Perfumo scandal I got into before, like the Astor family, the Kennedys. Uh, wow. The Hamburgs, a couple of those in the UK. You had uh, several prominent people from the Democratic Party in the US. I think Bill Richardson, the uh, the US senator from Nevada, was in there. And I think also one of the governor, excuse me, uh, New Mexico, not Nevada. And I think another one of the, uh, maybe it was a governor from New Mexico was in there or something like that as well. Um, but yeah, there were just, you know, I mean, lots of names. I mean, I think Kissinger was in there. David uh, Rockefeller, if I remember correctly, was in there. So Kissinger is known for said uh, the biggest aphrodisiac is power. <laughs> he would know what he talked about. I mean, he looked like shit. So that's <laughs> the way he got. But look, I've Googled it. Meanwhile, and there's two black books. Uh, it's the Epstein's little black book, and then there's the Epstein's other little black book, and it's not little at all. The first one is 92 pages, and then there's double pages, twice that, because it's two pages in one. So it's 92 pages, the other one is 36 pages, and here's the thing, not only is it huge, I mean so many people, so many people, who has 92 pages of of names in the book. That's yeah, Epstein was definitely a popular dude, man. Yeah, but here's the other thing. Half of it is redacted. Yeah. yeah. So, so who has the power? Who takes these decisions to say, Judge Kaplan is going to be the judge of this case? We're going to redact the names. We're going to black them out. We're not going to go after the prison guards. We're not going to do this. We're going to that. 
obviously systemic failure here, or design actually. So, so this means there's people who can reach the judicial system and the press. At least those two power bastions are compromised, are doing the bidding of those whose interest it is to protect this. And what does that tell us about who's pulling the threads? Well, you mean specifically like uh, who, what group of people are? Or I mean, like, are you talking about individuals or groups? Because if they can control both the juridical branches and the press, there ain't that many options. There is either going to be some of these alphabet soup agencies, probably CIA or NSA, because I think those are the most powerful, or it's going to be someone within the official government, like in the White House. There's not that many uh, options left to, to be able to influence the press. It's not just one outlet of the press. It's across the board, right? And... Yeah. The juridical system. I mean, it is not just one court. It's not just New York. Remember, we we touched upon how earlier many court cases uh, didn't go anywhere. Uh, like he was protected. Oh yeah, Epstein. I mean, have been protected for a while now because I think the allegations that first started to surface about him, like around two thousand and two, two thousand and three, I right. think something like that. So. You know, it was known for a good decade or so before his first uh, brush with the law. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a surprise to people who were in his social circles. Mm. Mm. But uh, I'm thinking one way this could have gone down is that one in the elite, let's say Bill Gates, just one powerful guy, contacts a bunch of other people who he knows has stuff to lose and says, look, this is horrible. They got him now. There's no way to get around. The whole internet is talking about it. Our friends in the press can't help us. We need to do something. Who is willing to do something? And if he spreads that among the truly global elite, there are going to be people there who have access to also the access to the president. Access. I mean, the president may have been one of the recipients of that panic note, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're going to uh, easily be able to influence both the press and the, well, it, probably a little harder, but, but also the, the courts. I mean, we have to do this mental exercise. We can't ignore huge, fat pieces of facts and not dot connect them. Because there are no other explanations as I see it. Unless someone is willing to come up with some good explanation I can buy. Say nothing to see here. This isn't a conspiracy. What do you think? Well, the whole thing with Gates is especially interesting because um, Gates actually is one of the guys who suffered some of the worst consequences of the Epstein fallout, and especially with the very public divorce. And depending upon how that plays out, and that could... Uh, did you see uh, the creepy statement Gates did regarding Epstein? Oh, what was it? The one where he said like what his, his lifestyle was intriguing, but it, it wouldn't work for me. <laughs> no. Verse, much worse. Okay. He said something, he Google it, uh, it was all over. How was it? He was asked to do a comment upon this, and he said that some creepy statement about, well, he died. Uh, the, the moral of the story is like, yeah, what did you learn from it? Well, something about dead guys don't talk or whatever, some vague threat. I, I should, suppose I should find it. 
But it's, um, I mean, it's really interesting because Melinda Gates arguably has got a lot of uh, power in all of this at this point because God only knows what she might potentially be yeah. able to bring to light for the divorce proceedings and what have you. So it's just to me very interesting because the Epstein scandal started to break around 2018, 2019, and Gates was linked to it pretty early in the game too and oh. then going into like 2020 um they're rolling him out essentially as the davos neoliberal spokesman for the uh the covid response and the vaccine and all of this other stuff which is just incredible because you know that he has all of this Epstein stuff hanging in the background, like the sword of Democles over him. So, right. yeah, he goes through this whole process. And yeah, then going into this year, I mean, you have the whole blow up with the divorce proceedings and whatnot. I'm very intrigued by all of this. And I do sort of wonder if Gates was maneuvered into some of this so that he could be taken down. Yeah, could be an internal power, but but he didn't help himself. I found a quote. They yes, said, and that's sort of, and that, you know, again, kind of goes back to one of the reasons why he might be on the chopping block and also alluding to what we've uh, talked about before. A lot of these guys are not very smart. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, no, no. they, like you're saying, they're their own worst enemies. They do a lot of this stupid stuff. And I think this is another reason why sometimes when these guys do end up going down for whatever reason, a lot of it has to do more because of their own stupidity and the fact that they become such a broad liability to the power structure. Yeah, the inbred upon inbred. And back in the day when, uh, like FDR famously said, he said, I didn't attack capitalism, I saved capitalism, which is true because it would have been communism or Nazism or some, some ism if he did, hadn't done the New Deal and stuff. Uh, but back in the day, the elites knew a lesson that they forgot now. Uh, and I say back in the day, you can go all the way back to the, you know, the Russian Revolution and um, at that time and up onto the Second World War. And th what they knew was that, look, if we're going to get away with this rigged system, mm -hmm. we have to throw crumbles to the masses. We have to distract the masses so they are being fed and happy. And then the middlemen, our useful idiots, the people right below us, they need to get their part of the deal. This is why you need a middle class, basically. Yeah. And, and that's how you avoid a revolution and you can continue. But the problem today, of course, is that the, the current elites know nothing of the sort. They forgot yeah, completely. Yeah, and I mean, that's... To me, that really cuts to the heart of like what I was getting at with how sheltered they are. And obviously, an argument could always be made that... I mean, an argument can be made that the elites have always been sheltered, and that's certainly true. But you go back and you look at the Anglo-American elites, you know, from the late 19th, early 20th century, and look at the experiences that they went through, and specifically right. in the first half of the 20th century. I mean, they went through two highly devastating world wars. And getting into the Cold War era, certainly there were a tremendous amount of faults by how the Anglo-American elite managed that. I'm not going to even begin to dispute that. But in fairness to them, I do think that they understood that there were certain lines that you just never wanted to cross mm. because we did not want to see what, you know, we had already seen what modern warfare looked like in the First and Second World War. We had even more advanced weapon systems, and we really didn't want to see what that could do in a Third World War. 
Mm. You know, this was just common sense having lived through the prior two. And it was the same thing, like you're kind of getting at also with the class struggle. People, again, I don't think really appreciate just how violent, you know, again, I can't really speak to Europe because I'm not, it's not really my um, forte in terms of labor history. Well, everything was worse here. (laughs) Everything was worse. I would imagine it probably was, (laughs) but I mean, certainly like in the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century, the labor struggle had gotten very violent, uh, you know, with the disputes between the unions and the Pinkertons and I mean, a lot of this other stuff It had led to... Uh, full-scale pitch battles in my home state here in West Virginia. We had the, you know, this is like right around the World War One. West Virginia is your home state. That's that's yes. uh, CAA Central. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I live right here in the northern part, or the right in the. Uh, oh yeah, no. Trust me, there's a lot of spooky stuff around <laughs> yeah. where I'm at. But um, okay. So on the other side of the state, you've got Maywan, which was a mining community, and uh, you know, it was a company town, which meant essentially that everything there was owned by the mining company, the houses, the general store. I think people were even still paid in script going into the World War Two or World War One era, mm. and. Uh, uh, the police were this detective agency, Baldwin Feltz. Uh, there was an attempt by the union or the, by the miners there to unionize. Uh, they were beaten back by these guys. And eventually it spurred a, almost like an Old West style gun battle in downtown Maywan. Uh, this was partly due to the fact that the sheriff uh, had sided with the miners. His name was Sid Hatfield. He was a descendant of the Hatfields from the Hatfield and McCoy uh, thing, in case you're wondering. Mm. So they had the gun battle. Uh, basically, the miners destroyed uh, Baldwin Feltz uh, detectives. They got their asses handed to them. <laughs> um, and then there were attempts to try to bring charges against Sid Hatfield. Uh, he was acquitted, I think, in both West Virginia and Virginia. And then as he was walking out of the courthouse, I think, in Virginia, uh, one of the Baldwin guys walked up and shot him in the face. And then there were never any charges brought against him. Mm. So that had spurred a full-blown miners uprising in the state of West Virginia. And this led to the Battle of Blair Mountain. Uh, it was the largest civil disturbance in the United States since the Civil War. I think something like 15,000 miners wow. marched on the state capitol. Uh, it's the only time that the U.S. Air Force has acknowledged to being used against the U.S. public. They actually had to drop bombs on them and what have you. Jeez. So, yeah, it's and it's never, ever talked about in this day and age either no but the miners of west virginia are famous like uh, working class heroes in history i've heard about that even all the way over here but so uh, you still have mining communities there don't you oh yeah coal yeah or something yeah coal mining though i mean yeah there's definitely been a lot of attempts to shut those down and that was a big part of what radicalized a lot of the communities here during the obama era um But yeah, I mean, kind of getting back to what we're saying, this is, you know, the kind of climate that was in the United States around the time of the First World War. Okay, you have thousands of miners taking up arms and marching on the state capital of West Virginia. Yeah. So these are the experiences that the elites from that era are having to deal with. Yeah. Okay. The people that are living today, I mean, Occupy Wall Street or whatever the fuck was nothing compared Mm. to that. Okay. They have no understanding of what dealing with full-blown civil disobedience from an angry public is truly like. I think, you know, some of them at least are starting to 
come to a realization though that it's going to get ugly i mean this is i think a big reason why so many of them are buying up uh land in new zealand and um a lot of far-flung corners of the earth yeah <laughs> already bush started to do that we're going to continue that thread i just want to i found a quote of gates listen to this this is weird they ask him what did you do when you found out about his background uh you know I said I regretted having those dinners, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. And then they say, is there a lesson? For nothing new. Who said there was new? He was asked how he reacted. He didn't answer. And then, is there a lesson for you or for anyone else looking at this? Well, he's dead. So, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> he's talking about Einstein there. There's no way you can interpret that other than he, he got what was coming to him. He wasn't careful enough. He spilled the beans. He got what he deserved. You see what I mean? Mm. <laughs> so if there's a, like there's always going to be in battles. People think, especially like the more simplistic conspiracy theory minded people, they think like it's one huge cult running the world, like an Illuminati. In reality, the world is ruled by yes, by elites, but they are factions. It's uh, I always say, look at it as a mafia. Yeah, I was going to say right? I like to yeah use kind of the example. Yeah, the different families, if they are under a common threat, they band together and they battle, let's say, FBI or whatever. But when they're left to their own devices, it's going to be infighting, doggy dog. You saw in 2008, uh, everybody got bailed out except the first one was Lehman Brothers. Was that the one who went yeah, yeah. to pieces, right? So how unfair for them when everybody else got pampered. So there's always going to be casualties uh, on the top, but usually if it's like the little man against elite, uh, there's no, there's no competition. You're going to be smacked. Now, uh, uh, I agree, they are stupid, but the thing is, when you have as much power as today and you have to go back to um, the feudal system, society, to find similar cases as at least America today, then um, with that, this much power, and it's not just that they have a lot of power, it's also the way power is wielded today. It's like you have incredible weapons that you could only dream of. It, it, the same amount of power like a thousand years ago isn't the same amount of power because it, it's going to be very costly to wield that power. You're going to physically have to bring some people over to kill some other people or to physically bring, just back in the Cold War, right? You had to physically bring someone to... Uh, monitor to spy on another person. Everything was a lot of uh, high cost. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. That's not all. They're also the means to run the power is incredible, like the technology, the surveillance. You, yeah, you mentioned. I mean, I think what you're talking about is like the rise of surveillance capitalism. Right. And then add to that, because they have unlimited power and unlimited money, all they have to do is hire brilliant minds. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that brilliant minds who are circling around uh, in this circle, either because they work for someone or whatever, like an Epstein, can ascend pretty high because of their smarts and old money is the competition and, and they're stupid. So unless they manage to get people out, like bankrupt people or crush some people, it's going to be a mix of old money and stupid people and their lackeys, their henchmen, which are 
pretty smart people because they need some okay i need someone who is very good in psychology uh find me someone who right and most people can be bought so so i i, I don't buy that they are completely clueless because they have means and uh, funds and resources to do this brilliantly they don't have to do anything they can lie in a hammock somewhere and have a teenager suck them off while they're enjoying a drink. So they don't have to get their hands dirty. Uh, but they're henchmen, and that's why, why I'm thinking probably they're, they're just using agencies for these things these days, or private networks of ex Yeah, I think it's more, people. yeah, probably likely you're talking more like private companies. I mean, Eric Prince, I think, is probably kind of the prototype of, you know, this kind of uh, mercenary that you would sort of look to to handle these types of things now. Mm, indeed. And um, one of the things with Trump when he ascended to power was that uh, people forget that he is an oligarch. But the reason people like him is because everybody realized that for cultural reasons, he was never accepted among his fellow oligarchs. They always looked down at him. He was like the this brute, this uncultured version of ourselves. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't have their own interests. Obviously, he, he did everything he could to enrich himself, made deals with the Israelis, with the Saudis, yeah. all this stuff, just like Clinton has done, etc., but still, I mean, we, we're on a scale here where we can choose between utterly corrupt and controlled people or partly controlled people. Because I, I do believe Trump had his own mind uh, within what is possible. For, I mean, it's not that much a president can do. But to the extent a president can do something, uh, it is. Look at Biden. The withdrawal from Afghanistan is obviously something Biden had decided on. He imagined probably, oh, it's going to be a feather in my hat. Everybody knows this is a disaster, pressure to get out. We don't have any real reasons to be there anymore. The resources we can plunder still, even if we go out, okay, I'll do this. I'll, I'll get that. I'll, I'll go down in history. And of course, it backfired big time. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> because the military industrial complex didn't agree with him, and and to the same extent, Trump did some like the South Korea thing. Was uh, I'm pretty sure uh, he went rogue there. So they have some level to go rogue on some areas, but when it affects other players, other elites, that's when you know you're going to end up as JFK if you uh, go too rogue. And uh, wasn't Alan Dershowitz, wasn't, didn't he work for Trump? Yeah, I think a few points. Yeah, so I think Trump must have instructed him to go soft on Epstein. Well, yeah, and I could definitely see that. Certainly Trump and Epstein, like you know, we talked about before, had connections for a while. Um, again, it's just fascinating with a lot of the political mechanisms that were playing out. Yeah, but, but look, look, if Trump was involved, don't you think someone would contact Trump and say, hey, man, you have to take care of this. Otherwise, look what we've got in this black book about you. Yeah, well, like I said, I think that's why we didn't really see the full-blown... Uh, reveal you know we only sort of got teases of it i kind of think there was maybe some uh i think in trump's case it was basically a uh, a kind of threat you know with how far he would be willing to go with the epstein thing throughout mm -hmm. his presidency 
which kept a lot of he, other... he didn't even have to have done anything all that they have to do yeah is... it's just more the fact that he had it in his back pocket yes yes getting like you know another thing about trump because i certainly think that trump did have much more control over his presidency than biden or probably obama as well though i do think obama did to try to assert more control than people give him credit for yeah but in Trump's case, I do think Trump is a little different than, uh, you know, somebody like Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or somebody like that. Trump basically made his money in real estate uh, in New Jersey in the 70s, early 80s, which <clears throat> means that he was, you know, involved with organized crime up to his neck. Yeah. This is an industry specifically he's working in where failure here isn't just bankruptcy. Failure is uh, a bullet from a small caliber pistol <laughs> and being dumped in the Jersey swamp. So uh, Trump is a shark. He came up in a very peculiar circumstances, to put it mildly, and certainly a much more uh, Darwinian, I would say, <laughs> uh, network than what I mean, you know, a guy like Gates really experienced. Mm. On the one hand, I think that's why some of these guys look down on Trump. On the other hand, why I think Trump held a fair amount of the sort of neoliberal types in contempt. Uh, because, I mean, he had come up in a much more dangerous environment, to put it mildly, where there were more real world consequences uh, for what you were doing. Mm. But uh, Gisley Maxwell, uh, what, what was her relationship to Epstein? What do we know? Uh, well, there's, yeah, there's a bit of ambiguity about that. I mean, it seems like they did kind of date uh, for a time during the early 90s. It seemed like she was generally a lot more into him than he was into her. I, I believe she had really wanted to get married at one point. Wow. Uh, but uh, she had essentially settled in, I think, by the early knots as his uh, personal assistant uh, slash madam or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Well, allegedly, I guess I should say. But uh, yeah, I, I'm guessing, obviously, if you've seen pictures of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, she has a unique appearance, let us just say. Epstein certainly by all accounts was into younger girls of uh you know usually with really petite frames and so forth not necessarily a description you would apply to uh, mrs maxwell so and then obviously the factor that she was aging and you know i mm. Yeah, I, I just don't think that I think he liked the social connections that she brought to him. Right. I'm sure he really appreciated a lot of the stuff that he did in terms of uh, managing his girls, but uh, allegedly, but um, yeah, I, I don't see that uh, he would have been interested in her sexually probably after like a certain point, mm. uh, at least on the regular <laughs> mm. Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, it's so interesting. People should really Google that black book. Yes, it is black and there's so many interesting names in it. Of course, there's the usual uh, suspects, right? Like the Rothschilds, all of them. <laughs> yeah, Kevin I forgot, yes, Rothschilds were in there. Kevin Spacey, obviously. He was, uh, I heard, a very frequent Lolita Express flyer. Frequent flying points, isn't that what they say? But then you have uh, surprising stuff too, like institutions like the Trilateral Committee, the White House. And for you Norwegians, I, I haven't gone through every name, 
But one name that stood out was Selina Middelfart. You won't be surprised to see that name there. <laughs> so check it out, folks. It's online. You can get it. So, but, but do we know? Do we know any other cases of similar nature as the Epstein case prior to the Epstein case, like involving the elites? Uh, in the states, probably the closest would have been the fallout with Franklin. Uh, and the links to that, the Bush, you know, two, or excuse me, Bush one. Could you go a little into that? People are probably not familiar. Yeah, yeah. The Franklin scandal was centered uh, out of uh, out of Nebraska, around Omaha, uh, and it also involved uh, Boys Town. Uh, that wasn't really reported initially, but Nick Bryant uh, really did a great job in going into that in the Franklin scandal. But essentially, it seems like kids were being recruited from this area and they were being flown back uh, to D.C. to be used uh, in a cowboy ring there uh, that had links to Craig Spence, who was a D.C. lobbyist uh, for the Republican Party. Uh, there were some of these kids had reported that Spence had actually given them tours of the uh, the White House at uh occasion. So there was a lot of weird stuff with that. Uh, I think it was. Henry Vinson, the so-called DC madam. I mean, he had some involvement with these people. Uh, Lawrence E. King, who was a Republican state representative from Nebraska, was a really big figure in this. Uh, at one point, uh, it kind of seemed like he was maybe even uh, being groomed for some kind of big national office. I think he gave the keynote address or something like that at the 1984 Republican National Convention. Uh, so, I mean, this was a guy who was seen as a, a major rising star in the Republican Party. I mean, he was in league with spins and a lot of this other stuff. Vincent talked about going to parties uh, or whatever, going to Spence's house. Uh, when King would be around and they would be just totally strung out on cocaine, mm. there would be U.S. soldiers there, I mean, in uniform doing coke with them. There would be all of these teenage boys going around naked, just people randomly fucking each other in the hallways and mm. just... Just full. This was this was a homosexual. Um, yeah, angle. this was more of like yes, definitely like a homosexual angle. Yes, yes, mm. yes, absolutely. So this is like the late '80s, early '90s, and um, the scandals. At the same time as the Finders. Uh, I think the Finders scandal had broken a little before this. Like I think the Finders was like '87 or something, and. That's right, that's right. And, but what we do know is the CIA was connected to the Finders thing. Well, the thing with Marion Petty, yeah, but we don't know the extent. Um, and that's like the other thing. I mean, Petty was involved with the Air Force for a lot of years. And again, it's never really talked about, but the Air Force did a lot of freaking research on like behavioral science and what have you in the 19... 19- what, what force is that? The uh, U.S. Air Force. Oh, yeah, the Air Force doesn't really get looked at. I honestly, and just in general, the military services don't, but the Navy and the Air Force specifically uh, seem like they were doing a lot of just crazy research on this. And it's really evident with the Yeah, Navy. the Philadelphia experiment, wasn't that the Navy? Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's a lot of dispute as to what was going on with the Navy, but like, or, you know, I mean, how legitimate the Philadelphia. UFOs in the Navy is. Yeah. Well, that's what I was kind of getting at. Well, also, too, the early behavioral modification experiments were pretty much all started by the Navy, uh, Project uh, Pelican, Project Chatter, that kind of thing. And then later, the Navy played a big role 
<clears throat> in uh, Project Artichoke, which was actually a joint CIA Pentagon program and not just a CIA one. Uh, a lot of the guys running it, like Morris Allen, have been Office of Naval Intelligence. But you have been weird things like, you know, L. Ron Hubbard uh, was mm. in contact with people tied into Artichoke or its predecessor, Bluebird. He, you know, was himself uh, a veteran of the Office of Naval Intelligence. He goes on to found uh, the Church of Scientology. And, mm. uh, and then on top of that, too, kind of getting into the UFO thing, there's just the whole cultural impact people tied to the Navy had in science fiction. I mean, Hubbard, of course, was a science fiction author, but Robert A. Heinlein, he worked actually at the Philadelphia Naval Yard, where the uh, Philadelphia Naval Experiment allegedly took place during World War II. He was a longtime Navy man. He had dealings with the O&I during the Second World War. Uh, obviously, the author of Stranger in a Strange Land, Moon is a Harsh Mistress, Starship Troopers had a profound influence mm -hmm. on not just science fiction, but the 60s counterculture, libertarian philosophy. Isaac Asimov worked as a contract employee for the Navy during the Second World War at the Philadelphia Navy Yard with Heinlein. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of right. Star Trek, he was another Navy man. Freaking Star mm -hmm. Trek absolutely glorifies the U.S. Navy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the spacecrafts are referred to as the fleet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's really <laughs> interesting. If you look at all the big U.S. science fiction, they're always, you know, the ships are always structured like the U.S. Navy, and it's this, like, utopian kind of stuff. And yeah. sounds, sounds like a case for Jay Dyer or Christopher Knowles. <laughs> oh, no, no. Chris and I talk about that a lot. Yeah. yeah. No, Chris and I think the Navy, I mean, actually runs a good chunk of the, uh, the country. Right. Well, well, I mean, if they have a hand into the UFOs, that, that's where the most power is stored, I think. But of course, as you know, it started long ago, but it's really accelerated under Obama. And that's the privatization of the military industrial complex. So I should say the space... The covert uh, um, space yeah, program. Yeah, space program. Yeah, right? yeah. So, mm. so we know that uh, you know Lockheed. I mean, if you look at Antarctica, we had a brilliant show with Cliff High about Antarctica and uh, Laidos, I think they're called, which is formerly a uh, part of Lockheed Martin. Oh, SAIC. Yeah, there was a part of SAIC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they are big in in Antarctica. They're involved in. Uh, we had Michael Shratton. Uh, you should watch. We turn it into a movie. It's called uh, "This Is the Classified Space Program." After you've seen that, I don't care if you believe in Little Green Man from Mars or you believe it's all uh, spiritual entities it doesn't matter you can't watch that quote-unquote movie or interview with him that we put visuals to without realizing after that that there's also a human component in this a military component in in the ufo phenomenon and okay. so i'm thinking uh, to tie this back to epstein that the higher you go in the layers of power the more you have to be involved with the deep state meaning now agencies like CAA, which isn't a, a federal agency. They are exempt from all federal laws. They're a state in the state. They're like the Vatican state in Italy, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So CAA has to be... Uh, and But also these companies like um, Raytheon and Boeing and all that stuff, because the thing is, those people who are heading the private industries, the global multinational war industry corporation, are the same people they put in place in the state when there's openings, like a new general or a new uh, minister of defense or a new this or a new that. 
It's a revolving door, as we know. So this elite now, this network of people, it's the same people. They become lobbyists, then they work for the state, then they work for one of the private corporations, then they become lobbyists, then they work for... You see what I mean? That's how it works. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Epstein had to be tied. You were talking Republicans, Democrats. I, I don't think that's as important as really, because it's really just everybody knows who knows anything about politics knows that in America, it's a one-party system just like in China, except that it has two faces and the only distinguish the only way you can spot the difference between those two cheeks of the same ass <laughs> is to look at the cultural stuff because they have a free pass to have some differences when it comes to identity politics and cultural wars. Like are you against abortion or are you for the right to choose. Yeah. So that's a classical distraction thing. But that's where the differences are. So I think when we talk about the elites, when we talk about power players, we really have to look at money. Money talks. Money is what... Uh, there's no democracy over money. And most of the money in the world today is hoarded among the multinational corporations. So even uh, when you mention the Navy, yeah, probably they may have had a hand in a lot as an institution, but unless their leaders are uh, among these power players, they're going to be irrelevant. But of course, their leaders are. And I think more so now, uh, we, we're talking about private companies rather than is it FBI, is it the Navy, is it the space force, Trump space force? I, I think those institutions are less, because they don't have an identity anymore. Back in the 50s, they, they had, and certainly during the war. But today, there's no the loyalty on the top is always... Yeah, no, I know yeah. what you're saying. But the, I mean, I think kind of beginning with the 90s, especially when you started to see the the downsizing of the military and a lot of it being transferred or, you know, not necessarily the downsizing, but the transference of a lot of it from public to private institutions. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting, though, too, how even when you sort of get into the private sector, though, there is, I think these sort of rivalries that play out uh, for like these extremely lucrative defense contracts. Um, just one that I've been, you know, kind of looking at because I think it was just a major factor in some of the things that have gone on uh, in the National Security Council and the Trump presidency uh, was the, basically it was the dispute involving Palantir uh, and the U.S. Army over the uh, data processing technology that they were using for their counterinsurgency efforts. Mm. So the army had paid a shit ton of money to Raytheon to build a system and they had delivered it, but there were some commanders who had started to dispute uh, its usefulness. So Palantir looking to get in on the action started to pass out free uh, software. And uh, one of the, this was around 2010 and one of the officers who used it and became a really big fan, allegedly, was Michael Flynn. Uh, Flynn also ended up becoming an unofficial lobbyist, apparently, for Palantir uh, oh, wow. after he got out of the army. So anyway, uh, Flynn... And no, no, hang on. Before you go on, I have to just inject quickly. Okay, uh, remember okay. your thought, because this is interesting. Flynn okay. has always been a riddle to me, because I saw... There's no mistaking that he was taken down, uh, as was most of uh, Trump's inner circle, uh, including um, Bannon. But 
Flynn was taken down and he was not marching in lockstep with the rest of the elite. Uh, so I knew, I, would say, I, I said, we can just count when they're going to uh, get rid of him because he was saying straight out, I don't care his motives, if he like is a true nationalist and therefore has some kind of ideological uh, reasons for it or if he was just fed up with the corruption and couldn't stomach it like many do and many put their hopes in Trump just for that but he was saying straight out he was one of the first who said it after that became a truism of course if you said it before that it was an unhinged conspiracy theory and that was that we created ISIS ISIL let's call him ISIL I hate using the goddess name for, for that group for Daesh okay. we created them we financed them and we have to stop even Tulsi Gabbard uh, threw herself on that train because it, it became possible to say it after that, although the evidence was always in the open. Uh, you have even uh, the guy who died, uh, Kane, Mc, no, um, Yeah, John McCain. McCain, yeah, Arizona. So, But the thing is, he uh, did rogue stuff like that. Like One of the reasons they're also are, uh, skeptical to Trump is the fact that he's a loose cannon. He can't control his mouth, so he may blur out stuff they don't want out there. And certainly Flynn did this. And so I, I thought because of that, I was thinking, okay, there is some kind of disagreement between Flynn and the contemporary power elite around him. And it's not this case. This case is just an, a, a manifestation of a deeper disagreement for whatever context and reason that disagreement is. Now you're telling me stuff I don't know about Flynn, so my ears are very open. Go on. Yeah, well, it plays into that. Yeah, I think that the coalition around Trump was broadly dis uh, dissatisfied with the neoliberal order and I think a lot of the foreign policy that they had been... The uh, neocon and the neolibs. Yeah, yeah. Well, neocon and neoliberals are basically one of the same. I mean, yeah, the neocons were basically uh, Democrat hawks who joined the Republican Party like around the late 70s, early 80s because Carter was too liberal with right. you know how he managed the death squads in Argentina or something like that but whatever but yeah i mean they're, they're the same thing but yeah, yeah let, let's just say neocon is the foreign policy neolib is the economical policy <laughs> yeah so anyway there was i think a lot of dissatisfaction amongst a broad coalition within the u.s and the uk for a variety of reasons you had elements within the pentagon and i think specifically the joint special operations command and that's what Flynn was a part of mm. uh, Eric Prince with Blackwater had done a lot of contract work for JSOC, but the Joint Special Operations Command is what houses or oversees a lot of the elite U.S. Special Operations Forces, the Delta Force, SEAL Team Six, mm. uh, the Night Stalkers, all those kinds of units are managed by JSOC. Uh, it became phenomenally powerful. Uh, during the Bush two administration. And I mean, really usurped a lot of the covert operation functions from the CIA, which mm. has been a major point of contention. So there was already that sort of black eye against the establishment order that JSOC had given to the CIA during the global war on terror. So Flynn, he's a part of that whole, you know, network. Uh, and then of course with Palantir and that plays into Peter Thiel and the PayPal mafia 
Um, you know, I mean, a lot of these guys, I think, had a certain amount of contempt for the mainline elements of Silicon Valley. I mean, specifically Google and Eric Schmidt, mm-hmm. who was very much a part of the neoliberal order. And on top of that, he was an outsider. Uh, he did not go to the colleges really in California or was from that region of the country. And he had gone to the Ivy League schools in the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh Teal and a lot of the PayPal mafia types. I think unlike a lot of the sort of neoliberal counterparts, these guys were genuinely very gifted programmers, not necessarily Teal per se, but a lot of the people he brought around him, Mm. they were innovators in a lot of cases. I think there was a certain degree of resentment. uh, Yeah, but see, they can find smart people if they need them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think to some extent, I mean, this coalition were the competent people who I think, again, were sort of fed up with what these, you know, Davos clowns and the neocons <laughs> were doing. And it was just kind of like, you know, what the fuck, guys? Mm. I mean, enough of this crap, you mm. know. Mm. So, yeah. OK, so getting back to where I was going with Flynn. So Flynn becomes kind of an unofficial lobbyist for like Palantir. So when Trump gets the presidency, I mean, just the whole national security apparatus is dominant by these generals who were fans of Palantir. You've got James Mad Dog Mattis. You've got H.R. McMaster. All of Do you these- know there's connections between Mad Dog Mattis and uh, one of the key guys of uh, Tom DeLonge in uh, To the Stars? Oh, what's his name? The main guy there. Um, what, uh, Elizondo? Yeah, Elizondo and Mattis. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I've kind of wondered if Flynn actually might have uh, helped sponsor the earlier, um, was it the A-tips thing too, or whatever it was called. Uh, they do mention in Skinwalkers at the Pentagon that they had received unofficial support from two DIA uh, directors, though they uh, had neglected to name them. But this would have been around the same time frame that Flynn uh, was the head of the DIA. So who knows? Hmm. But anyway, so you have all these guys who were big backers uh, of Palantir and the national security apparatus, including the uh, Secretary of Defense, i.e. James Maddock Mattis. So that leads to a competition that the U.S. Army runs between Palantir and Raytheon to see who's going to get the continued contract to build the uh, counterinsurgency software. And surprisingly, Palantir wins and the DOD gives them an $800 million contract to build a new infrastructure to replace the one that Raytheon uh, had built. So Raytheon was not happy about that, to put it mildly. And again, this is also kind of a pushback from the upstart company. I mean, Palantir, again, is from Peter Thiel, and it's out of the whole Silicon Valley milieu. Raytheon Mm -hmm. has been an established player for decades now, and Palantir really aggressively uh, went against Raytheon. And it basically, you know, started uh, out, like I said, outright canvassing for officers and the U.S. Army to start attacking the Raytheon system and bring them into the Palantir orbit, and it succeeded. And now uh, you have the changing the guard with Biden and the new uh, Secretary of Defense. Oh gosh, I can't Blinken. remember. Yes, 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 yes. No, Blinken is the uh, the Secretary of State. He's not the Secretary of Defense. Oh, you're right. Uh, yeah, this black dude. Um, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, I can't remember his name now, but uh, this guy before. Or after he had retired from the army and before he became the secretary of defense, he worked for Raytheon. Lloyd Austin. Austin, yes. Austin yeah. was a Raytheon man. So That's right, that's right. 
you got to kind of wonder now, is this also some of the stuff that's playing out with this? I mean, Peter Thiel, he made a killing during the Trump presidency. I mean, in terms of the contracts that Palantir got on the one hand, because they also managed a lot of the border security stuff that Trump was doing from the tech uh, side. They got the contract to monitor a lot of the stuff for COVID and what have you. Or they're the company that's going to end up getting your medical data here in the States. So mm. I'd be happy that Peter Thiel is going to have your medical data soon, America. It's going to be a real pleasure. Yeah, but isn't isn't Peter Thiel a libertarian? Yeah, yeah, he's big on like all this transhumanist stuff and what have you too. He oh, was oh the, my god, he was the one who was backing the oh, what was it the cyobiotic research or it was basically the whole thing that was claiming where they did. Yeah, this. but doesn't libertarians believe in privacy? <laughs> He's not supposed uh, not to be. So, not if it's a private company doing it. They just, no, you know, of course. As long yeah. as the government's not doing it, yeah. you know, you know right. keep the That's government right. out of our backs, man. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he was also looking at basically that research that was claiming the blood from older uh, or from younger mice was helping rejuvenate older blood so, or younger, older mice. Oh, the one in, in, in California? Yeah, 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 yeah. Pure, pure. yeah. What happened with that? I've been talking about that on air because they literally found out how to switch off the aging process. And I was saying this research, although it's done in the pub in public institutions, is going to go black. We're never going to see any benefit from it unless yeah, you're Bill Gates. I think it was like right around the time Peter Thiel got interested in us. <laughs> so he he's the one who, who who swapped that up. That's what I would guess. Damn, you know what that means? It means that we'll we'll see people like Bezos and uh, Musk and Thiel around as they now look for hundreds of years. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't surprise me, man. Teal is like, uh, well, I mean, he was, uh, he got in, I just found out that he got into extropianism. I mean, all the way back, like in the late 80s when he was at Stanford uh, College and what have you. So he's been obsessed with all this kind of like life extension stuff for years. But mm. it's interesting because cryptocurrencies also conceptually really grew out of the extropian movement. That was kind of the predecessor to the cypherpunks. And that was probably the group that, uh, came up with a lot of the uh, uh, the tech for the cryptocurrencies, you know, what became Bitcoin and so forth. But I mean, that does tend to indicate that there was probably this PayPal mafia element that was present in a lot of it as well. You, you had an excellent show about uh, crypto. In fact, uh, I want to have the same guest on or someone similar to elucidate the history of cryptocurrency. I mean, let's give it a shout out. What was that show called? Ah, I can't remember. I think the it was history? maybe just the secret history of cryptocurrencies or something. Secret history. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's a go-to title for you guys. The secret history of dot, dot, Yeah, dot. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go on. Yeah, it's a tip of the at the crystals. But yeah, so the PayPal mafia, and it already kind of seems like they might have been, you know, Teal, Elon Musk, and those types of people. I mean, it seems like there's a good chance that they were the ones who were bankrolling some of this cryptocurrency tech mm. on the side, you know, during the 90s, early knots, and then it gets released into the public around 2008. So it's not without precedent that they were bankrolling potentially this sort of black tech. And I, mean, I could definitely see that too with this life extension stuff. It's all 
tied into that ironically in fact you, you know probably never heard of this before but that was actually why um they came up with uh, the concept of what we now think of as cryptocurrencies in the the first place so you got the extropian movement now um you know they're good libertarians with uh, and they're also big science fiction fans i mean they dream of this glorious future where we're going to have our own personalized spaceship and we'll go across they share this vision with some elements on the so-called left yeah 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 progressive well how much of that again and you know it sort of even goes back to the 70s and a big pusher of this was robert anton wilson again who was arguably more in the libertarian camp but i mean there's definitely been a long standing libertarian presence in a lot of this yeah you're right but uh you know the extropians okay so they're going to have their spaceships in the future and they're going to go across the universe and colonize everything with nanotechnology and Mm. you know they're going to get to it by cryogenically freezing their bodies and going this is what happens when you let the Nerds become the mm. <laughs> the new bullies. <laughs> But okay, so the, there was only one problem with this utopian dream, Al. Okay, so how are they going to preserve their wealth over the centuries until it'll be right. time you know, until life regeneration technology is discovered and they can be unthawed and brought back to life? That's the kicker because, you know, they're libertarians, right? So they know that the US dollar is going to either be worthless or gone by that point in time because mm. we'll go through the period of a communist government or whatever. And gold is always tempting, uh, but, you know, it, it's really fucking big. Yeah. Where are you going to store it at? And it can What's be What's going to stop the government, yeah, from seizing it? Uh, there's a lot of problems with gold. So, all right, how are you going to preserve your wealth? And that was when they started to develop a, what will become cryptocurrencies. It was kind of an early digital currency. And this is all the way back, like, in the mid to late 80s. Like, well, what if we could figure out a, a kind of currency that we could put on, like, a CD or something? I mean, that would be so easy to hide. And then we would have all of this money so we could then, you know, get the spaceship and the nanobots in the future and start colonizing the universe. And all yeah, this, this was before they had hopes of living forever. This was back when they thought they could go into Cree or what you call it in English, frozen, freezing popsicle. down. Yeah, they became popsicles. Pop- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cree or something is called the science. Cryo chambers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah cryonics so but i always knew that was bullshit it wouldn't it's just physically impossible but rejuvenating yourself another thing i think is uh, another wet dream of the transhumanist that's physically impossible is to merge consciousness and machine it's just not going to be a well they can merge it uh, but thinking that a machine can become sentient Alex goes back and forth on that, but I'm with Cliff high on this. Junk in, junk out. It's not possible because consciousness is not the same type of energy Mm, as what's like an algorithm, a software. But never mind. It doesn't matter what you or me think about this. The thing is, they had these hopes, but now it's something real, something that can... Of course, they can always die by a car accident or someone shooting them. But in, in lieu of that they will be able to just go on and on and on. And um, yeah, ne- basically never age. It's a very frightening uh, Yeah, thought. and that's, and again, to kind of bring this back to Epstein, you know, this was the kind of stuff that he was looking at in the last stage of his life. That's right. He was a transhumanist too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was. That's, that's uh, essential, man. 
And this is the perfect. Yeah, go on. And that's why I keep emphasizing this is the part about Epstein that people should be looking at mm. and why he was getting into this. Because again, you know, Epstein had access to all of these black funds. And I agree with what you're saying. I think the sort of tech dreams, the belief that they could reanimate dead flesh and all this stuff just wasn't really practical. But there were things that you could do at a genetic level, yeah. you know. I mean, I think also gene splicing is another thing yeah. uh, that they were looking at, uh, which is again and, and now the gene manipulating the entire world. With yeah, exactly. Which is I was going to say another interesting thing why you know we're suddenly getting this vaccine that makes does something to your mRNA potentially and palantir's keeping track. Of the, the, just that this doesn't get taken down on YouTube. Uh, we're not saying this doesn't mean we're not opinionating about the efficiency of the vaccine. He's just pointing out that. Yes, we're just pointing out that there could be other things at play with it. Uh, yeah, well, at least we're pointing out that uh, it is a gene manipulating event taking place. There's no denying that you're manipulating the RMA. It's just a fact. And again, that's why I go back. Palantir is uh, one of the main companies that's tracking the medical data now related to the COVID oh stuff, which is, Jeez. you know, run by this Peter Thiel character we've been talking about, who's really into all of this transhumanist stuff, who was also looking at how blood from the young could be used to rejuvenate older people. So, <laughs> Okay, but now this is the perfect segue into the last aspect of this case I uh, thought we could talk a little about, which has been Alex. When we say Alex, we don't mean Alex Jones, we mean our buddy it's Alex Securis. Yeah. yeah, I was skeptical. He's been big on this. And this is the, uh, I said the occult aspect of it. You pointed out the transhumanism aspect, but at some point that becomes basically occultism is when the let's go back to the spirit cooking you mentioned now that may just be art and it may be performance art and it may be culture sure but at least it goes to show their ideals it goes to show what they fancy what they think is is in vogue and um, we have this adrenochrome claim that they use it in order to prolong their life. And I, I don't doubt that there has been people who has been seriously involved in that because they believe in it. Talking about spirit. You're on adrenochrome. And adrenochrome, right? So, so we see here, maybe some people took it seriously. They uh, uh, believed in it. But this is much more practical what we're talking about. And then we have to ask ourselves, how much does the evil factor into this? The, the concept of evil, uh, whatever you make that out to be. Uh, how much is it this an, a reflection of or maybe a spiritual battle going on? And uh, how much of this, if you take a Gnostic approach to this with archons uh, or, or just plain uh, mainstream term demons, how much of this is uh, theater being physically manifested on behest of our collective unconscious? Have you any thoughts about this? Uh, I mean, you know, to some extent, I can, I, I think I see what you're getting at, because I do feel in a sense that we are uh, kind of living in Gnostic times, if you will, quote unquote, and you can draw a lot of parallels to the original Gnostic times. I mean, the first century BC, the uh, first century uh, C was it, what do they call it now? CA or whatever. 
what previously would have been known as AD. I'm not too hip now on the right. term, terminology for that, but whatever. Anyway, um, you know, that whole time frame where a lot of this stuff developed in Alexandria, of course, it was a crossroads for Egyptian and Roman and Greek and other North African cultures. And I mean, just. And in those cultures, uh, the age thing wasn't a big deal in sex. Yeah. yeah but what I was. But what I was kind of getting at, there was, I mean, a lot of these cultures were in period of crisis at that particular uh, time. Rome had just had these brutal civil wars throughout the first century uh, BC, uh, which had led essentially to the death of the Republic and the rise of the empire and just a totally new paradigm for how they had perceived themselves. I mean, a lot of the ethnic Latin population, I mean, had been destroyed by the civil wars. I mean, you really have to emphasize just how many people had died. It was phenomenal. How many? Nobody really knows for sure, but I mean, some <laughs> of the accounts, entire regions of Italy were just totally depopulated. Um, wow. But again, no wonder they had to rely on on uh, mercenaries. Yeah, well, they had to, you know, and again, in this era, you had so many immigrants who were brought in because, I mean, yeah. there was just not, you know, there just weren't people there. But kind of going back to the era with, uh, I guess, Ma uh, Marion, I think, and Sulla. And then, you know, you had the civil wars between, what was it, Caesar and Pompey. And then, um, oh, gosh, you know, Augustus and the Senate and then the, uh, Augustus and Mark Anthony. I mean... More or less, there was a span for 70, 80 years where Rome was just in periods of continuous yeah. civil wars. And it was highly traumatic for the population. And these Romans were brutal in general with warfare. And it was certainly the stuff they did to the other foreign peoples. I mean, they were not quite as harsh to their own citizens. And they were shrewd. They were so shrewd in, like, they were the predecessors of the deep state. Uh, the, most of the plots being done behind the scenes is the same playbook as the Romans. Side. They were very shrewd in, in intelligence work and manipulation. Oh, yeah, what they became the Petroleum Guard and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, so, okay, this was a very, it, the first century BC was a really traumatic period uh, for the Latin peoples and the peoples of Rome, uh, and they weren't the only ones. The Greeks had just been conquered. They had went from being really the preeminent civilization in the Mediterranean to largely being vassals. The Romans, the Egyptians were sort of in continuously in this flux of a great civilization that had been in decline. So there was a lot of uncertainty about the world in that particular era. And uh, it was really reflected, I think, specifically in the whole concept of the Demiurge. When you go back to Plato's concept of the Demiurge during the height of Hellenism, I mean, it's a much more uh, benevolent figure. He's seen as a good architect, a wise manager of uh, the physical world, whereas by Gnostic times, he become this, literally this blind idiot, essentially, that <laughs> enslaved spirit and matter. But I think at least part Part of that was just a reflection of how, as a society, people saw the world at that point in time. And again, you know, as I was trying to emphasize with the traumas previously that the Romans had gone through through the civil wars, that the Greeks had gone through from being conquered by the Romans, the Egyptians had gone through all, all these people had experienced a lot of trauma. Hmm. Uh, there was more than enough of it to go around. 
So I think that was very much reflected in the concept of the spirituality at the time. There was this dualism and this ongoing struggle between the light and the dark. And I think going into the times that we're in now, I think, you know, we're in a singular sense. Um, In the United States, we're not really ready to, I think, publicly acknowledge it yet. But I think a lot of people sense that the American empire is coming to an end. Uh, Of course, we... And, And it's pure evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, we only really started to even acknowledge that we had an empire like in the last decade or so or whatever. Yeah, that's American. The rest of the world uh, is in a different uh, paradigm here. So, But like, I think the American public is just kind of starting to really break up the fact that, you know, we have an empire that like you're saying that it's pure evil and now that it's also... And that that's the cause of most of the problems in the world. Mm -hmm. Very few normal Americans buy into the propaganda anymore but there's still a bubble in washington of course and and you know neolib and neocon circles where they drink the kool-aid and keep the pretenses up of the old paradigm which is rotting from the inside out but the whole of the world and most of the americans know what's what but anyway go on we are, i was distracting you now we, we were getting at we were talking about but yeah that whole kind of that paradigm yeah. you know that pax americana and i mean where it was also related with the in the same players in europe with the davos crowd and what have you i mean i think there's an overwhelming sense in a lot of europe in the united states that 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 whole world is coming to an end, essentially, yeah. which it is. It's unraveling before our very eyes. And uh, I just think that this is sort of the... Yeah, uh, but still, uh, Assange is, is being extradited. I, I don't see what's unraveling before our eyes is the games, the power games. They're not able to keep hidden anymore. Many people can see more than ever what's going on. But in terms of practicality, they ha- it seems to me they have more power than ever before. The Epstein case is, is point in case, just the way they get away with it. It may be incompetence. It may be that they're not. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that. I mean, you're definitely right in terms of like how rigged that the official system is. Yeah. You're correct about that. But on the flip side of the coin, we're getting to the point, though, I think, where there is a very real chance that, I mean, people are going to go out and start shooting some of these veeps. And I think they themselves are also concerned about that. Yeah, but, but I don't think that will happen. Uh, they are probably concerned, but that's why they're doing the divide and conquer thing, right? I think there will be a civil war b- before before America. I mean, I'm just saying you would think that Davos, you know, and I mean, that whole section of elites would be invincible now. This is sort of the heart of the neoliberal order. I mean, you've got people like Eric Schmidt, you know, from Google, who's built a lot of this control infrastructure to manage the plebs. And and by the way, Peter Thiel? But they have to cancel their their annual confab at Davos this year because of the amount of death threats that they were getting. Really? Yeah. Oh my God, this is great. But but so, Peter Thiel, I mean, this is like kind of my point. You know, if they're in total control, why are they having to do this because of death threats? <laughs> right, right. But Peter Thiel, he actually worked briefly for Sullivan and Cromwell. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah, he did. He did. I think like another one of his um, key early allies that also worked for Sullivan and Cromwell as well. Right. But I ask you uh, the, the spiritual perspective here. Like, how much is this a manifestation of evil? Because we have to factor a couple of components into the culture. You've already pointed to the transhumanism and uh, occultism aspect. Maybe yeah, the Satanism you even mentioned in part one. Probably more as a control mechanism, though. Yeah. But. <clears throat> There are other indicators too, like, for example, in a system where we know that, let's say, 1% of the population is psychopathic, or maybe less, but let's say 1%, in a system like corporatism that we have now, oligarchy and corporatism, who will ascend to top? Even though normal people will try to ascend, mm -hmm. sooner or later, normal people will divorce themselves from there are certain choices they don't take that a psychopath will take. So sooner or later, psychopaths ascend to the top all over the board. That's number one. Number two, they will then set up the system to continue with incentives for psychopathy, which is indeed does now, which again attracts more psychopaths, because you will just be a poor CEO if you don't have psychopathic traits. Now, we also know from university studies that for example, they can pinpoint with mathematical formula that the richer you get, I'm talking incredible wealth now, people. Don't imagine it's your own American dream that you're going to work yourself up to the top and own your own small company or something. We're not talking about those kinds of riches. We talk about riches that amounts to money that you can never use, spend. You can never use them up if you even try. Yes. So... We know that the more you get of that, the less empathic you become. That's the formula. It's like, it's, it's straight mathematics. Okay. So you become less empathic just by virtue of the fact that you have a lot of power and a lot of money. And, and we also know that people who have been close to people like, like this, we know how they think. It's like they are bored. When you have unlimited power, which is unnatural, it's biological unnatural, it's spiritual unnatural for a human being, nobody can withstand that. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Oh, so sure. you need to exert that power. You need to exercise that power somehow. You have to tickle that bone that you matter, that something matters, that you care about living because they have no problems. They don't have the problems you and me and the listeners has. We Everything is a struggle, and but hopefully not to the amount that we can't live but we are used to having to deal with like you said the new elites they are incompetent because they have no challenges they don't know how it is so culturally speaking we're getting psychopaths we're getting people who are removed from the human experience we're getting people with perverted ideologies and spiritualities we're getting people with values which are horrible Humans are just numbers in a computer, and yeah. So I could go on and on and on. You see what I'm getting at? All yeah, these yeah, amal yeah. amalgates to become like a different kind of human. When Richard Dolan talks about the breakaway civilization, he talks partly physical, although it's, of course, on Earth, but it's like it's a breakaway in technology, in reality. Dr. Pasolka says the same in American Cosmic, that they have this... We can do anything. We can travel to the stars. And that's when, like, having sex with minorities becomes a thing. It's like something different. And, uh, yeah, nobody cares. It's just random uh, plebs, right? And we are the elites. So um, I can see why some people interpret a spiritual aspect into this and see that it's evil in play. 
and other people i mean there's i mean at the end of the day any analysis of what makes them tick is kind of a projection i will uh, take away from it how i outlook on the world right so you can have a political layer on it you can have a spiritual layer on it you can have an ideological layer in it you can have a economical layer in your analysis of it i think it's not either or i think it's everything everything coming together in a perfect storm you see what i mean yeah 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 any comment to this well i mean yeah and then i think ultimately what really brings about the end and i think a lot of times of these you know elite power structures is the fact that uh their own self-destruction is kind of built in because it's like you're saying they are structures that are set up to support psychopaths yeah. and sociopaths and dog eat dog uh, which Marx is even was onto it a long time ago he said that uh, it will eventually become monopolies yeah and i just you know to kind of go back to the the roman empire um it's one of these things where it's just like in hindsight look at it there's no real reason why it you know should have ended other than uh the failings of the ruling elite right i mean when you get right. into the early uh 3rd century Implosion. you know the early 3rd century ad the roman military machine was just almost invincible the average legate i mean on the limes you know in germany or some far you know flung outposts like that probably had two or three legions under his command mm. the average legion was probably 2 to 5000 i mean heavy infantry plus a similar number of auxiliary troops so i mean you're looking at a guy with like 15 to 30000 troops under his command at just some far flung corner of the empire okay to put this into perspective take the battle of agincourt uh which is celebrated in um uh Henry V and Shakespeare you know we few we few we precious band of brothers all that jazz it was one of mm. the most celebrated european battles of uh at least in anglo-american culture of the uh, right. middle ages right. so anyway i mean i think the french had around 10 maybe 15,000 troops and the british had like around 3 or 4,000 okay so there probably weren't more than 20,000 troops who participated in this in this battle which was a huge battle in the middle ages okay Okay. Mm. Uh, just some Roman general in like the far flung quarters of the empire had more troops under his command than the British or the French armies combined. When Caesar was campaigning, he would have like at least a hundred thousand troops with him. Okay. Jeez. Europe did not have the ability to field those kinds of armies until like the 15th of the 16th century okay right, right right that was the phenomenal amount of organizational prowess right. that the roman empire had right we talk about how oppressive the middle ages was or something like that it just it was brutal but not for reasons that people think that it was brutal it was brutal because it was really a lot like the american west or i think what you would get if we ever live out the american you know, or the libertarian fantasies i mean there was actually a lack of law and order you could basically go and rape and murder your neighbor's wife and kill him and his family and unless his children or something hunted you down nothing would really happen mm -hmm. in uk and in england the law consisted 
the Shireev, the early institution of the sheriff, which was like a petty nobleman uh, and maybe 20 <laughs> or 30 men on horseback trying to oversee, you know, a territory the size of Rhode Island. They just yeah, and they were corrupt anyway. Yeah, and they were corrupt anyway. <laughs> I mean, there were just whole swaths of the country that were just totally outside the law. And that was where the whole concept of the outlaw came from. And this was the same way in France and a lot of other countries. And they just they didn't, you know, yes, there were all kinds of insane laws on the books that the Vatican had pushed for and so forth. But for practical purposes, they didn't have the freaking manpower to do any of this stuff. Okay. Except if you were an elite, then you were in a bubble. Yes, yes. That's like the weird thing about the Middle Ages. The elites were actually held to higher standards <laughs> than like most normal people. And they were actually the ones who fought in the wars too. I, I give them credit. They were the knights. And I mean, a lot of the elite troops, they actually, in the Middle Ages, war was actually more of a rich man's, uh, rich man's yeah. pursuit. So I give them credit for that. It was one of the few. But they were closer to the human experience than today's elites. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, but the point I was getting at, just the Romans had the ability to oppress people in levels to which like the average monarchy in Western Europe during the Middle Ages could scarcely even imagine. Okay. So like I was getting back to before, there's just, there was almost no reason why the Roman Empire should have gone in decline. I mean, it had phenomenal control. It had phenomenal military prowess, but it did because of the crisis of the third century, which was brought on by all of the freaking civil wars it fought. There was, I think, this period after the Severan dynasty uh, went in decline, I think from like, what, 220 or something to like Diocles' reign in 280 or something. I mean, it was like a 60-year period where There was a civil war 50 times, literally almost every year, every other year, some general from the east or west marched on the freaking capital and they had to bring in the army from the other side of the empire and they had a huge freaking war. And then whoever won that became <laughs> the emperor. And then like next year, they did the same thing. And even then, it took almost 60 years of this crap for the empire to really start to feel it. Right, you know, right, like right. that led to Constantine. And even he was able to sort of uh, hold it together for a little while longer. But I mean, really, it was just the whole just insanity, the crisis of the third century, which really is what ushered in, you know, the Middle Ages and feudalism that brought about this. Mm. And it was all because of the fact that you just had an, you know, basically an out of control military that had no loyalty at all to the civilian government and just was routinely trying to take control of it by whoever was in control of one army or other. Mm. So, yeah, that was what brought about Rome's downfall. And quite possibly we're getting into that in the West right now. Yeah, yeah, the parallels are there. The last question I obviously have to ask you is, Do you think uh, it was an inside job to take him down? Or do you think he actually was taken down by tripping over his own web of plots and the shit hit the fan, as they say? Or was it actually uh, something else going down behind the scene? Of course, wild speculation, but what's your take on it? I Yeah, I tend to think that it was speculation. It seemed like Epstein had kept a fairly low profile, uh, especially after his 
a release from prison. Uh, you know, it was kind of interesting, like we were kind of talking about before, how it had just sort of everything had bubbled to the surface. I mean, around like 20 or not to the surface, but it kind of really emerged uh, as a major story, like around 2018. A lot of the like the Black Book, I think, had been floating around for a few years beforehand. I mean, a wow. fair amount of this stuff had already been kind of public knowledge. So it does sort of seem like that there was a consorted effort to really dredge this up to the surface. Um, I would guess Epstein might have been singled out specifically because he was already damaged goods to some extent. I mean, he had been busted and um, it also seems like he had ruffled some feathers by all accounts. He was fairly arrogant. Uh, Certainly, if you've ever looked at a picture of the guy, he does look like a smug bastard, uh, 90% of them. So, (laughs) um, I mean, he looks like the kind of guy you almost just want to hit on principles. So, I mean, like... (laughs) That's right. You know, I imagine he probably <laughs> pissed off a fair amount of people along uh, the way too. So there might have just been a sense of, uh, right. uh, he's not going to really miss him if you throw him to the wolves kind of mentality. Right. So. Right. Well, as long as as long as his um, power grip on them isn't present anymore. And then I also think we kind of talked about before too, just the fact that he did have that sort of you know unique connection to both Trump and the Clintons as yeah. well. So kind of almost proverbial double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, I think that you know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, the fact that he was targeted for an inside job had to do with you know, simply with just historical circumstances surrounding him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump has a lot of entries here. Like uh, he has all the contact details to Trump. Um, but like I said, folks, Google it. There's a lot of, and of course, every city he goes to, he has a full server where he can get so-called massage. <laughs> it's like Mexico City, massage, and then Polly, <laughs> yeah. Rachel, whatever, right? Uh, all these masseuses. So that's a huge priority in his book too. But uh, no, it's very interesting. I, you know, somewhere there's like a book floating around where he had like his personal ratings for like each masseur that he saw too. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So sex was always on his mind. Sex tourism with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and Lolita Express, just so people know, that was the nickname that they themselves used, wasn't it? For the plane, I that believe so. I, actually, I may, it might have been the media that came. I'm not sure if it was the media or them themselves. I'm okay, sure. okay, but uh, well, it was referred to it, I think, at least uh, unofficially, and I think the media picked up on it. But um, that was out to this private island, and that again, then we come back to the rumors out there that there are private estates in the world which is inaccessible to public scrutiny, where they do unspeakable things, but. It's as far as we reach today. Let's wrap up this show now with going into your stuff. Okay, okay. Um, There could be no doubt that you have uh, a very broad range of knowledge. And some of this is applied in your books, others in your podcast. But look, the book um, that has been a backdrop for today's conversation, uh, let's give it a shout out. That's part one of, uh, is it a trilogy you're working on? Yes, yes, yes. It's a special relationship, uh, The Secret History of Trump, Epstein, and the Anglo-American Establishment, Part 1. Right, right. So Trump is uh, figuring in a title there too. Interesting. So that's Part 1. So um, what's the next book then? The next one is the Q1, which is also going to get into... 
uh honestly it's also really going to be a big history of a lot of the stuff with mk ultra and artichoke and how a lot of that was kind of transferred into the darpa research uh during the 1970s and how it plays into the cultivation of conspiracy theories by the national security establishment and so forth for uh political warfare oh my god that's so interesting the manufactured conspiracy theories the the decoys are you familiar with the something called honest news it's a comedy channel they have a youtube presence too they made a brilliant video about q have you seen that they made another brilliant one about assange but have you seen the one about q i know i have not honest news i'm gonna send it to you it's hilarious <laughs> they're basically just pointing to how it is uh, an op you know a distraction op. yeah no obviously yeah. but um, uh, we'll have you back and talk more about that in the future so we don't have to go into that now uh, so that's part two of your trilogy the q1 no 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 that's like a separate book i that's haven't a separate started book. yeah 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 that uh yeah yeah it's uh the secret history of uh conspiratainment uh bircher's discordians and the shattering of reality is that uh, the title of part two no that's the title of the book that i'm working on right now the q1 oh okay nice nice uh do you have any estimation of when your book is out uh, I'm hoping to get it out on uh, March 22nd, uh, since there's also like a lot of Discordian stuff in it too. I was hoping to oh, figure okay. out a way to get a 23 in it there, or maybe March 23rd would actually be more appropriate. That's nice. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, because that would also be like the 332 thing too. Okay, so so come back in March or sometime around that. All right, man. February, March, April, and we'll do something on it. I have a lot of readers among my uh, audience, so um, I think your stuff is right up their alley, actually. So, yeah. yeah that's cool. Mm. So, when that's done, are you going to go to part two of the Epstein thing? Quite possibly. I've also been thinking about, though, finally doing the book I've been uh, talking about doing for years now on the Sovereign Order of St. John. So, that might actually be the next one. So, Oh, wow. That's right. going to be getting into the pseudo uh, chivalric orders here in the United States, like the Shikshini Knights of Malta and all that kind of right. stuff. Which and is and propaganda do you? Uh, and, and Probably not that one, but the, okay. the Shikshini Knights are tied in, though, to like a lot of the Wandering Bishop stuff that like Lavenda gets into and what have you. So right, right. It's, it's, it's definitely quite a story, man. Yeah, we've talked with Peter Lavenda about the Wandering Bishops. He was involved in that back in the day. Yep. So, uh, do you have uh, any uh, and there's other books too in on the horizon? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I always have tons of stuff on the horizon. But but, but, but what about in your past? Is there any books worth mentioning? Oh yeah, yeah. There's also uh, my first book, which I co-authored with uh, Frank Zero, uh, "Strange Tales of the Parapolitical." Uh, post-war Nazis, mercenaries, and other secret history. Uh, that and the Epstein book, A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment are both available on uh, Amazon. And you can get uh, digital versions at uh, the Farms uh, Store, which is uh, the farmpodcast.store. And uh, I'm also the host <clears throat> of the Farm Podcast. Uh, so definitely check us out there. Yeah, and so is Frank Zero, isn't he? Uh, well, Frank is now, uh, you know, he still works on it here and there, but Frank's got like other stuff he's uh, working on too. 
but I do got John Brissom on there with me a lot and uh, a couple of other people who are sort of part of the farm family group. I mean, Frank's definitely a part of that too. And uh, a few other folks who helped me out. But uh, damn, that book you made with him, that dovetails so much with several programs we have had, a series of programs we actually have. I should probably, uh, but maybe I would. Uh, did he contribute as much as you? Could he talk about that book? It depends what sections. Like I think right. he wrote the one on the RFID thing in the intro, and then I wrote the rest of it, like all the stuff in Colonia Dignidad. Oh, okay. I, I should probably talk with you about that too. Then I just wanted to give you a rest. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> because it's I okay. want to talk with you with the Q book because uh, especially the post-war Nazi thing is interesting. But I mean, it's kind of it should be uh, an element in your other books too. I don't know if it is, but yeah, well, definitely. <clears throat> I mean, my plan with the Epstein trilogy was the second part. I was really going to get into uh, Le Cercao, which I think, you know, was uh, important in understanding uh, the Epstein network. And of course, the Cercao uh, was just very much. Well, I mean, it's my belief that, you know, Le Cercao was basically set up to manage uh, the stay behind armies uh, in Western Europe, initially in the aftermath of the how, how do you spell that so people can Google it? Uh, it's L-E-C-E-R-C-L-E, I believe. French word, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. It's also known as the Panay Group, Panay Circle. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, you had the two German partners who had helped set it up, Franz Joseph Strauss and uh, Conrad Adenauer. Both of those guys were connected to the secret armies in Germany, which Otto Scorzini had also probably helped yeah. train. Uh, and a lot of that goes into the World Commerce Corporation, which I talked about in the first show, too. So I, I would imagine the octopus is connected to Le Circle. Too. Yeah, yeah. The octopus was sort of a successor of this kind of network. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. And uh, and I think Bormann Reich was heavy in both of them. At least it was um, influencing um, Odessa and Die Spinne. Die Spinne is still around, by the way. No, it would not surprise me. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about your podcast, but uh, if you think about the subject matter we've talked about today, which podcasts have you done which you think would be most interesting to listen to for people who have found interest in today's uh, discussion oh gosh um, yeah it's a hard question i know uh well, but I mean, certainly certainly the one about the paypal mafia right yeah yeah the paypal mafia would be one uh you know you definitely want to look into and i would say you know all of the ones that we did on the, the world ending communist league are uh, really tops i mean they get into is that part of your secret history of fascism uh, no, that was like kind of the precursor. But yeah, the World Anti-Communist League gets into a lot of that too. And then also the one we're working on now, the secret history of international fascism. Uh, the next one, especially, you know, we're really going to get into like uh, the drug cartels and, you know, kind of the overlap with some of the child sex trafficking networks right. in Mexico and just all kind of, you know, a lot of stuff. But, but this, this makes me think, look, uh, not to go back into the debate again, but when there's drugs and sex trafficking... I mean, that's when you have the three-letter CIA, right? Yeah. And then you see CIA is also involved in all these obscure pedophile Satanist cases, like the Finders, maybe not the one in Belgium, but uh, certainly Epstein and um, 
Yeah, and, and, and some other cases. I forgot the names of all this. Um, I should have prepared better. But anyway, when CIA is a heavy presence, and also in mind, the drugs operations were experiments with drugs and people. What was that called? It was called... Um, there, are different, there are a couple of different ones, but MK Ultra, Artichoke, yeah. uh, K-Oft, and all those ones. And then you have the paranormal stuff where they try to, you know... Man- you mean the SRI remote viewing ones? Yeah, stuff like that, Stargate. So they're interested in influencing our minds. They're, influ- they're interested in... Um, for some reason, violate innocence. They seem to cross over both to the transhumanism and occultism thing. And obviously, they use this as control files on people. So I'm thinking when you look at agencies, CIA, just by virtue of the natural work, seems to should be have a bigger presence than something like NSA. NSA is about surveillance, right? Or the Navy intelligence, etc. Yeah, there may be remote connections, but don't you think really CIA of all the agencies are in the heart of this, should I say, this overlapping uh, network of culture and shady black operations? Uh, Not necessarily. I definitely think you're overlooking the presence of how much the military has been involved in this. Um, You know, I mean, really going, I think, way back. But I mean, in terms of things like domestically, uh, especially with operations, you know, there are two things the military really has going for it on the one hand, as opposed to the CIA and uh one is obviously the legality of it. And technically, the CIA is not supposed to operate domestically. I mean, again, that's not <laughs> to say that they don't, but I don't Only think... Own, own all the newspapers and the journalists. <laughs> I just don't think, though. I think that they tend to be more selective about that. I mean, especially when it comes to going hands-on human-type stuff, like infiltrating things and so forth. And then secondly, you also have the issue of manpower. The military is used, you know, veteran organizations like uh, the American Legion and stuff like that for years to spy, like on uh, trade unions, for instance. Mm. The army alone just has an insane amount of people that they can draw on, I mean, to use as spies and so forth. Mm -hmm. So they have almost an unlimited supply of manpower, which I think is another reason why they tend to look at the army for this or excuse me, just the military in general for some of this domestic stuff. Mm. But I mean, on top of that, I was getting out with the Navy and some of the other ones. I mean, there is a lot of interest in this kind of weird stuff. And specifically to get to this one group that I was talking about writing a book on earlier, the Sovereign Order of St. John, the one kind of Mm. tied into uh, you're the one usually known as the Shikshini Knights of Malta. I mean, this group had an insane amount of connections to uh, military officers, uh, high-ranking ones. And you look at their military uh, correspondence board. It's, we're not talking about like, you know, captain or lieutenant or something. We're talking basically general, mm. admiral, colonel. I mean, these are all like mm. very senior military officers involved with this outfit. And many of them had served under, in some capacity, uh, General Douglas MacArthur during either the Second World War or Korea. Uh, which again, you know, is significant because A. A. MacArthur has been tied into a lot of the stuff with UFOs, as have a lot of the military officers who served under him. Mm. And secondly, MacArthur and his uh, spy master, General Charles Willoughby, who was a member of the Shikshini Knights of Malta, really did not like the OSS and had totally 
blocked the OSS out of uh, the Pacific theater during the second world war. Mm. So this meant that uh, Willoughby was actually the one who did a lot of the stuff uh, in the Pacific theater that the CIA did with the Nazis uh, in Europe in terms of relocating, uh, what was it? Unit 731 in the U S scientific community, managing the golden Lily and a lot of this other uh, dark funding and so forth. So basically, these guys had access to a phenomenal amount of black funds from that alone. And then on top of that, they were huge patrons uh, for the KMT in Taiwan, who controlled much of the opium trafficking for years in Southeast Asia, really until the U.S. military was driven out. I mean, just huge connections with all of the drug trafficking and so forth. Mm. Uh, so these guys were a huge presence in this, and they really, in a lot of cases, did not like the CIA, even though they did have some kind of nominal relationship, because effectively this network became the American version of Gladio, quote unquote, in the United States during the Cold War. Mm. Uh, this was managed through a lot of uh, the cults associated with Christian identity theology, which was totally being promoted by the Shikshani Knights of Malta. And this is, you know, led to just an insane rash of terrorism in the U.S. throughout the Cold War and beyond. Mm. Pretty much the whole militia culture grew out of the stuff that the Shikshani Knights were doing. And I mean, some of the groups that they helped fund. So mm. this was a group that was definitely involved in some really shady capacities. And I'm going on with this because they were also obsessed with a lot of this occult stuff. I have this manifesto they wrote where they were basically talking about orgone energy and what have you wow. and how that they were divinely ordained to establish a one world theocratic government to eliminate fossil fuels and replace our energy with orgone. I'm not making this up, man. Mm -hmm. They had people like George Hunt Williamson, who was a member of the group. They had Delmo Deveras, who was another freaking Nazi kind of a line like UFO contactee, mm -hmm. Cleve Baxter was a member of the SOSJ. They tried to freaking recruit Indigo Swan uh, from the remote viewing project. I don't know if they succeeded or not, but they were looking at him. Wow. Oh, God. I mean, what's his name? Colonel Philip Corzo was a member of the yeah. SOSJ. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, I have Baxter's papers and he was sending reports back to the longtime Grand Chancellor Charles Pichel about all of this stuff. And it's interesting, too, because Baxter had known L. Ron Hubbard, who was doing his own cold thing with Scientology since the 50s, mm. when Baxter was like working on Bluebird, which was a predecessor to Artichoke. So, you know, again, you also have this guy who had been involved in behavior modification, who was involved with the Shikshani Knights of Malta. Another guy, General Bonner Fellers, had ran all of the psychological warfare operations for MacArthur in the Pacific theater during the second world war. Mm. Okay. So not an unsubstantial amount of psyop experience on his part. A lot of these guys had done very sketchy stuff and a lot of capacities for various branches of the military for a lot of years. So this was a huge private network that had access to a lot of funding. They were plugged into a lot of this just weird occult stuff and then I do think in some level, this might have been the group that you would have been looking at hypothetically if you were going to try to run some of these sort of quote unquote mind control cults or something mm. to manage because they certainly seem to have been doing that with some of these Christian identity sects and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a show in itself. Well, 
Super interesting. But uh, let's give a more shout out to your podcast. So the podcast is called The Farm. Hmm. And it was hard to find, but do you have a website for that podcast? Uh, yeah, it is the uh, thefarmpodcast.com. That's all one word, thefarmpodcast.com. Right. And, and uh, everything, uh, all your shows is published there, right? On that yeah, website? yeah, everything is up there. For example, you had podcast with Alex Zakiris. What was the uh, subject there that you discussed? Uh, I think when we I had him on, we were touching on Alex's book, uh, Does Evil Matter? Was that the name of it, or why does, or is it why does? God, I'm sorry, Alex, I can't remember. Yeah, why evil matters? That's why right. evil matters. Okay, okay. Uh, yes, yes, and I think that was what we touched on. And then the more recent one we did was actually a tribute to uh, Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent. He had been uh, kind of going back to the Vise Up days. He had been a commenter on my blog, uh, and then he had also contributed to some of the posts. And then he had ended up uh, appearing on a few of the shows, specifically the World Anti-Communist League ones that I had recommended earlier. Uh, Don slash Ed had uh, actually been a defector from unification church which uh i'm mm. sure you're familiar with if you've looked into that kind of history so he, moonies yeah oh yeah the moonies yeah he uh he had a lot of very interesting insights based on his own experiences as a uh, moony in the 70s and 80s mm, okay so we gave a shout out to some of your co-hosts and some of the shows is there other shows that we like have you had a show on epstein yet uh, actually, no, I haven't really done one on Epstein properly, you know, because I've written a book about it. I was kind of like, yeah. after I'd written the first book, I was like, yeah, I don't really want to, you know, because I also was having to do a bunch of shows promoting it on other podcasts. And <laughs> anyway, it was just kind of like, uh, I, I want to talk about something other than Epstein on my own shows. So. Right, right, right. But damn, I would love to hear you uh, converse with um, Whitney Webb about it. <laughs> That would be interesting. Yeah, I've, one of these days, I've, I've been meaning to try to reach out to her and see if I could get her on to do a show on Epstein. Uh, one of these days. Right. Well, same here. Uh, let's make a deal. The one who gets the first on recommends it to the other one. <laughs> sure, sure, <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's your books. That's your podcast. Is there anything else you're involved in? Uh, there's you... also my uh, my longtime book or my longtime blog, Lather uh, Visup. Uh, you can find that at visupview.blogspot.com. What's that? Visup? Uh, yeah, V I S U P V I E W dot blogspot.com. Yes, uh, Visup actually stands for Volusia Investigative Society of Unexplained Phenomena. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, yes, yes. No, uh, that was kind of giving my work. Like, like a Fortean thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that was kind of like how I got started out on this. It was sort of a ghost hunt investigation, ghost investigation, paranormal investigation right. thing that I did with my one mate in uh, Florida back in the day. Right. That's uh, been definitely quite an interesting journey over the years from that. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, okay. Anything else? Um, I know, no, that's it. That's it. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, I'm advising my listeners to check it out, especially the podcast. Start with that. If you enjoy that, then you know uh, you'll certainly enjoy the books. Or if you want to bypass the podcast, of course you can. Go directly to the books. I've uh, had the pleasure of uh, reading in one of them, and it's fascinating stuff, man. The only criticism I have of the book is the font you used. Man, do a do a more friendly on the iPhone, please. <laughs> oh, was it like too big or something like that? Uh, yeah, it was too. 
it was well not necessarily big but it was like flat and stretched out kind of it was just unpleasant to read ah, okay, okay. you know how some of them are more psychologically easier to read right but it, it doesn't detract too much it's totally worth it it's not as if you don't want to read it it just is a weird font is all i'm saying and maybe it's just my personal preference maybe others won't regard it as that but the book itself brilliant stuff man all right sorry and uh, the podcasts over there uh, with you people and i'll have steven back for more interesting stuff like this until then thank you a lot for for coming on this time oh thank you man mm. steven we could go on forever but uh, I'll, i'll let you go for now then oh yeah and i'll get back to you i'll keep you in the loop all right man sounds good okay man good luck with the rest of the writing oh, thanks man i appreciate it likewise Okay, okay, have a nice, have a nice uh, evening then, and thank you again. Yeah, have a good one, sir. So you've been listening to another episode of Forum Borealis, this time with Recluse of the Farm Podcast, which I recommend you go check out. And thanks again to him for coming on. Now, this isn't going to be our last Epstein show. We are going to follow up on it. And I think maybe next time we'll, we'll go through some of the more basic Epsteinian facts. But let me reiterate, you know, to those of you who haven't paid sufficient attention, let me just uh, uh, sum up why we are talking about this matter of fact as actually a conspiracy in the real sense of the word because it's a cover-up. It's a huge cover-up. And, you know, the mainstream media, first off, there was a period where you were suppressed for speaking about these things. You see, I think this was the first time we really felt it. I mean, the crackdown started in 16, but the overreach, if you like, I think started with the Epstein case. You know, there's always something new now. There's a single narrative that the media is obsessing on and you're not supposed to deviate from that narrative at all. I don't know if you guys, ordinary listeners, even know this is what's going on, but we who produce independent media are battling this daily. It's like a fight with the windmills. You really have to keep your eyes on the ball and your tongue straight in your mouth because you do one misstep and you're gone. And so many people have been gone over these missteps where they've gone on as if it's normal times, as if truth matters, as if we're living in a free and open society with, with free speech, etc. But uh, they have slowly been tightening the screws, uh, shrinking the overton window. And uh, you notice it especially when, you know, it's a thing of the day. So for a short, brief moment, there was the Epstein thing. And even the mainstream media uh, wrote a lot about it, even some critical stuff. And here's the thing. When the shenanigans, when the fishiness gets inbaked into even the mainstream, that's when they're loosening Uh, that's when we suddenly are allowed to, because everything is arbitrary. It's like uh, being raised by a psychopath. There's no clear boundaries. Everything is on a whim. Uh, you don't know. You can be praised. You can have success doing something or you can be crushed for doing something. There's nothing to relate to. I'm talking about the independent media. The mainstream can do whatever they like. Even the normal rules don't apply to them. Like, for example, you can't talk about this subject. You can't talk about that subject. Uh, you can't present this subject in a particular way. Well, they can. So 
Uh, and we've seen it, you know, we saw it with COVID, we see it with the Ukraine war, we, we saw it during the election with the Biden and, and the Biden-Trump thing and the Russia gate. So it's it's been like the, it's, I think it started with Epstein and so even the mainstream, and that's what the thing, when it becomes evident and truism in the mainstream, that's when we're clear to report on the same thing. It's horrible circumstances to try to do media, but there, that's where we find ourselves. Unless stuff like Rumble and Odyssey can actually grow to reach the levels of our YouTube. But you know what happens then? It's being taken over. It, whether it's hostile takeover or friendly, and then, bam, they implement the same things. We'll, we'll see on Twitter now what Musk, maybe a new precedence can be made by that. But, you know... One single man can't save us, whether it's uh, Elon Musk or uh, Bernie Sanders or uh, Donald Trump. That's delusional to put your stock in a single person. But every every part helps. Anyway, I'm rambling. Let me get back to point. Here's just something to consider because they say, oh, say, oh the conspiracy theories will run havoc now because of this or because of that, is what they're saying. What they really mean is that, I mean, I, I'm translating, I'm fixing it for you what the mainstream is actually communicating when they say these things. And that's that, oh, there's so many data points out now that logical, rational people can't avoid putting them together, can't avoid putting the puzzle pieces together and see the picture. Too many puzzle pieces are now in place, so we can't avoid that they're seeing the clear picture. That's what it means. It doesn't mean this delusional, raving, uh, lunatic carrying a sign saying the end is near. That's how they portray it when they refer to these so-called conspiracy theories. And indeed, there are <laughs> conspiracy theories in the world, like there's an Illuminati and stuff like that. That's a, that's a hypothesis. The hypothesis is the right word, actually. A theory actually explains the data points that's already there. But that's how they present it. But the Epstein case is a perfect example that there's no way any normal thinking person who's have had their brain completely broken on the Kool-Aid of the propaganda and the dumbing down and the cognitive dissonance that they are actively encouraging and spreading. So, and we're fortunately sufficiently number of, of critical thinkers and, and just normal logic to realize this stink. So here's, here's the data point that's painting the picture. You have a petering of the elite, of the powerful. It doesn't matter. The Hollywood actors and stuff like that is insignificant. If it was only that, it would probably be outed. No. The real problem here is that there are powerful people involved. The real elites, the real establishment. And, uh, uh, and so we have this guy who are the, the handler. And uh, by the way, a little fact check, several of the victims were as young as 12 years old. Doesn't mean everyone, doesn't mean that represents the average age, but that's as low as it got um, from what I've been able to research. And, uh, the, and another fact check, by the way, is the guy Bill Barr. I was talking about uh, the, the Trump puppet, which, yes, Acosta as... Recluse said is one of them who quenched uh, the cases early on. But now, when it all blew up and Epstein was arrested, it was Bill Barr, Trump's man, who made sure that it did not reach the 
the level of scandal that it should, because he was the U.S. Attorney General in 19 and 20. Yeah, it was Bill Barr, not Alan Dershowitz. When I said Alan Dershowitz, I was thinking of William Barr. Dershowitz is involved, but then as a uh, defender of Epstein and also a client, according to some accusations. So like, like Bill Clinton. So the facts, first off, narcissists don't hang themselves, okay? <laughs> they are sissies. They cling to life. They're driven by ego. They don't even believe in a soul. And uh, Epstein was in a good mood that day. Check it out yourself. Everything I say, nothing here is obscure speculation. It's established fact that you can verify for yourself. He was in a good mood and he waited to hear if he could come out on bail. That's been his M.O. the whole time. Several times he's been uh, taken in and walking out again on bail. And there's a never-ending supply of people who will hand in the money, right? So it's their own assets they're saving, not his. The prosecutor in the case, lo and behold, is the daughter of Comey. You remember Comey, right? FBI guy from the... Clinton email investigations who Trump booted um, when he took over. So a deep player there, part of the usual suspects. So his daughter is, of course, the prosecutor. <laughs> Very promising, right? And then you have, you know, the, the things you've heard, the fact that the cameras outside Epstein cells malfunctioned coincidentally. All of them, not just one. That the gods, or oh, they fell asleep, or oh, they fell asleep, both of them, coincidentally, right? Otherwise, never happens in a maximum, in a secure suicide watch prison as he was in. Or, oh, oh, another coincidence, his cellmate was released that day, his cellmate. And of course, you have the clear evidence, like Epstein's in injuries are being more consistent with strangulation than hanging. Um, you know, it's often in the cover-up of things that it goes wrong. You saw that in 9-11, you saw that in JFK. Always when they try the cover-up, that's where most of the shenanigans are leaking out. So, so the evidence of the investigation, like the DNA, not released. Not released. The families themselves of Epstein says he was liquidated. And like I said, the cam in cell six hallway didn't work. And there's cams everywhere, but only the cams in his cell and outside in the hall was, was malfunctioning. And it was a model prison and a small prison where everything was in on view. So everybody who is familiar with it saying it's unthinkable that something like that could happen. Now, uh, the left-hand man, if, if Gislaine is the right hand, then uh, the left-hand man is Jean-Luc Brunel, also called Epstein's pimp. Now, wouldn't you know, he too got Epstein recently. In a French prison, hanged himself completely alone. Isn't that quite a, a convenient coincidence? Why are these coincidences always going one way in the favour of those who don't want this exposed. If it was truly accidents, they would be all over the board. But no, they're always going in one way. That's another telltale sign, right? 
So uh, as for the so the cover up, you know, it's in a normal society where justice works, heads would be rolling. No heads are rolling. They would do basic stuff like investigate, take the prison guards. Why is that that nobody has looked into their bank accounts and stuff like that? So there's either by hook or by crook. So either carrot or stick. So either bribery or threats. It's so simple. If I was in a position to lead an investigation, I would know exactly where to begin and how to crack this. You go to the weak spots, but nobody's doing this because it's about cover-up. It's not about real investigations. No heads are rolling. In fact, the warden in charge of this place, you know what happened to him? Again, this is just in. He's been quietly retired during DOJ investigation. So I bet he has a tropical island to go back to. And why is it that Dr. Sawyer in the Senate hearing couldn't speak to the investigation a specific case when she was indeed grilled by several of the senators who, of course, doesn't care and knows it's not going anywhere, but they want to posture, they want to get credits, they want voters to think they're on, on the right side. At least that's how my read of it. Maybe some of them are sincere, but um, who's to say they're not in charge anyway? And then you have this spook popping up, in this case, to Judge Kaplan. Everybody should research Lewis Kaplan. It appears to me that he may be the biggest corrupt crook in the entire New York jurisdiction. Uh, Google him in connection with the Stephen Donsinger case. You'll be shocked. Um, he's been involved uh, in the Prince Andrew case connected to Epstein. I think he's also the judge in the Maxwell case. Now, why is this bastard popping up everywhere? And you will understand my attitude to him if you Google him. I guarantee you one thing. When they bring Assange to, to America, I won't be surprised if he he's going to be involved there too. Although... I don't know, he's in New York, maybe maybe it's outside of his jurisdiction. But they have people like that on their payroll. Now, in the Maxwell case itself, there was speculation how it would go, right? How are they going to let her off? Are they going to Epstein her? Like they did with, like I said, with Brunel, and they even did it with John McAfee recently. Google that. Or is she just going to go scot-free? That's a kind of a problem because of appearances, Of course, she's going to go free, but they can't just let everyone see. So it's brilliant. It's technicalities. Seems that, oh, one of the jurors wrote something wrong, something obvious, (laughs) before this case started. And because of that, uh, they can get a mistrial. Uh, Look into that, too. So, again, a real investigator, a real prosecutor, they will see, okay, who paid this juror, you know? Check the bank accounts. They can find every single dime of any pleb they want to. Everything is digitalized. Everything is controlled. Everything is in the open. It's not like the old days you had a Swiss bank account and nobody knew. Everything is in an NSA service. But no, they're not uh, looking up anything like that. So it's in the aftermath of the entire thing. We realize we put these dots together And the painting is clear, right? And, of course, the premise here that makes it even more so is that we needed people like Epstein, Maxwell, and Brunel 
alive so that they could spill the beans on all the rich and powerful clients that's been involved in these crimes, or maybe even the institutions that they are connected to, like deep state agencies, etc. So when we have that, and we know everybody was waiting for that to get out, that's the premise that now heads are going to roll. Now we're going to see real lions in the circus. And then all these coincidences happens. So that's, uh, and you may say, okay, your spoon feeding was the obvious. Yeah, I know, most of you are there, but it's not that long ago I noticed someone I know who completely naive referred to Epstein's death as a suicide. So people, some people are buying into this. Which kind of people are doing this? It's, it's basically three types. One, it's those who have an agenda, who they don't care for truth, they are working to spin stuff. Uh, the henchmen of the elites, of course. So, I mean, <laughs> they're not many, but they are basically hired in media. Then you have uh, those who doesn't look into these things. They haven't, they're not familiar with the facts, like these facts I just gave you. So they don't know these things. So they just read the headlines or, or maybe a few sentences in a newspaper and they buy into it. Now, these people are invested in the status quo. So they can't, they can't have a world being so dark and sinister that there is corruption at the top, that there is murder, that there is collusion, that there is uh, suppression. There's one rule for thee and another for me. So, no, they need to believe the mainstream narrative that we are presented so that they can sleep at night. That's where they are. It's just a psychological thing. So that's on account of the cognitive dissonance. And then... I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to smear retards, and I'm actually unsure. You know, if retards wouldn't get it, maybe they wouldn't. I mean, or kids. Maybe we should say children. Maybe children would believe it. Depends on how old they are. But if you give them all the facts, you know, you can write a murder mystery for children, right? And they 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 are trained to realize certain things. So I don't know how stupid you have to be to really <laughs> believe the mainstream the mainstream media and narrative, but um, I'll tell you one thing, I've never seen so many normies, muggles, sleepwalkers, exoteric people actually understanding back even back when it happened that Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, neither will we here at the forum, but if we are gone one day, you know why, and hopefully you also know where to find us. I've been resisting for the longest time to create an email list because me personally, I always, I'm always bothered by email. I have more emails than I can relate to and I hate being on lists, but that's just me. And I realized I can't judge how things work based on my own weird habits. So in fact, I realized that that's how most people do it. And that most of you don't mind being on our email list where you get updated when new show is out, etc. So I have to do that for survival reasons because just one day we'll be gone. And so if you get on that email list that I haven't created yet, but I'm about to <laughs> go to my website uh, and you'll find it there. Probably when this is out, you'll find it there. So I'm going to start that too. Because people are confused. Where? How can I know when there's a new show out? It's pretty simple. Uh, per today, we have used uh, Patreon 
to send updates, we've used YouTube uh, community posts and Facebook. But I'll, I'm going to start using uh, the email. And it's, you, you know how rarely we, we make two shows a month, right? Still the long form, so you get, you get uh, four or five hours every month. But it's so random, people not always keep track of, of the new show. So you'll, you'll get nagged maximum once a week, usually every second week. So in this email list, the only thing we'll do is to send out when a new public show is out, plus when a new show for website subscribers are out. Like I said, we use these other platforms. We will continue to use these other platforms for that kind of announcement too. But that's really the best way, I think, to reach. And that way we don't have to, when they delete us, our audience isn't scattered all around. At least we have one lifeline to all of you who actually bother to sign up, which I hope you will, because we couldn't do this without you. So thank you for staying with us and having our back. That's That's it. it. And to all you truckers and yellow vests out there, You are not alone. You're in our hearts. Thanks for fighting for freedom. I've been your host, Al. Thanks to your support and my team. Until next time, stay strong, stay healthy, stay free. Be seeing you. Number one.